Good morning, everyone. We are so glad you're with us this Thursday. Let's get started with five things to know for this Thursday, April the 27th, 2023. Tucker Carlson is talking. His message to viewers released minutes after a New York Times report that shed new light on the text messages that may have led to his firing from Fox News. Plus, inside the home of the Air National Guardsman, who is now accused of leaking sensitive secrets online, prosecutors releasing new pictures and details overnight as they make their case that he poses, quote, a serious flight risk. Also, House Republicans in Washington passing a plan to raise the debt ceiling by the slimmest of margins. President Biden says he's ready to meet with Speaker Kevin McCarthy and talk about cuts in the House plan, but says raising the debt ceiling still not up for debate. Moments ago, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis blasting Disney's lawsuit against him and his oversight board, saying the suit has no merit. He claims it's political. Disney says DeSantis is punishing free speech. Also, feeling the heat. Eight seed Miami pulled off a massive upset over top seed Milwaukee Bucks after this circus shot by Jimmy Butler sent the game into overtime. He is on a roll this week. See it in this morning starts right now. And there was some singing last night. Yes, some real singing, not by President Biden, but by the South Korean president at the White House. Long, long time ago. Oh, I love it. I can still remember how the music <laughs> used to make me smile. Total surprise. Look at Biden's face. And now I knew he fed my chains. That I can make those people it's good. Dancing. It's pretty good, right? Baby, baby, That's the president of South Korea. Right, he's heading to Capitol Hill today. But what a state dinner, huh? I know the state dinners at the White House is one of the best parts of, of covering the White Have House. Have you been to one? You don't go to them, but, but you can right watch. You, you do this thing called booksellers. You stand right there and you watch everyone come oh, in. I love that. So you see everyone who's invited, a lot of celebrities. Mitt Romney was there last yeah. night. Kevin McCarthy's was in the last not. one. I did not see him at this one. Right, he uh, wasn't it. Yeah. We'll get into that. He's yeah. got a lot on his plate. Uh, Also this, we're going to start here because it's remarkable. We're hearing from Tucker Carlson for the first time since his firing as new and pretty ugly details emerge about why Fox News got rid of its highest rated primetime star. The New York Times reports the breaking point came after Fox executives discovered startling, highly offensive and crude private text messages from Carlson on the eve of the Dominion trial. Not long after that. Uh, report dropped. Tucker Carlson posted this video on Twitter. He did not mention Fox News by name. When honest people say what's true calmly and without embarrassment, they become powerful. At the same time, the liars who've been trying to silence them shrink and they become weaker. That's the iron law of the universe. True things prevail. No mention there of that new reporting from the New York Times. That report says that the text messages that were discovered by Fox executives were even worse, apparently, than those that were revealed leading up to the trial, the ones we saw in public. Apparently, there was one message that was so particularly offensive. It added to the concern at the top of the company calls to crisis in the days before they thought they were going to trial. We don't yet know what that message was. But the Wall Street Journal did report yesterday that Carlson had called a senior Fox News executive the C-word, of course, the same obscene word he used to describe Sidney Powell. That's the Trump-connected attorney and election conspiracy theorist who was a regular guest on other shows on Fox News. Here's how one of Carlson's former producers, who we should note is now suing the network, describes the culture of that show behind the scenes. 
Women were objectified. It was a game. It was a sport. Female politicians who came on the show were mocked. There were debates about who they'd rather sleep with. C-word all the time. For more on all of this, let's bring in CNN's media analyst and Axios media reporter, Sarah Fisher, CNN's anchor, senior political, political analyst, John Avalon, and CNN political analyst, Natasha Alford. Thank you all for being here yeah. this morning. I mean, this is the front page of The New York Times mm-hmm. today saying Carlson's text ignited a crisis for Fox chiefs right before they thought they were going to trial. What struck me was though, the attorneys had these messages for months. Why did the executives not see them until the eve of that trial? Well, it could be in part because they're redacted. Well, the executives should be seeing them regardless. But the fact that they're redacted means that they're not going to come into public view. I think another crisis is you don't know when things are going to become unredacted either in the future. And so if you're leading into this trial, you see this stuff that's coming out. You're surprised by it by management. But then you're also worried that from a reputational perspective, if and when this ever does become public, you then have to deal with that crisis at a certain point. And that's where it becomes a huge risk. Uh, And it might become public because John, the New York Times, Associated Press, NPR have all challenged these redactions. So, yeah, and and, and maybe this was a move to kind of get ahead of that. But it kind of boggles your mind that it was these text messages was that was the sort of straw that broke the camel's back after all the things that Tucker Carlson had done and said, rewriting history around January 6th, promoting the great replacement theory, um, that these must be really awful. And they must also go to the heart of something. I, I mean, Fox didn't bear a cost for all of that. In fact, it gained them viewership on Tucker Show. The cost they bore was $787.5 million in the, in the settlement, you know? So they finally had to pay. They finally had to pay, and there's outstanding suits as well. And, and maybe they thought that firing Tucker would be a, a sign, send a signal culturally inside the organization. But, you know, there are other on-air personalities who were promoting uh, election lies a lot more loudly and consistently than Tucker Carlson. Uh, and they still have jobs right there, uh, over there right now, Maria Bartomeu in particular and, and Judge Jeanine Impero. So uh, we'll see. They're outstanding cases. But mm. the fact that whatever was in these text messages was apparently what made the Murdochs finally decide to flip the switch— mm. That's stunning. We're not hearing last of that. Just to quickly jump in on that, though, if what's in this text messages is alleging sort of misogynistic mm. language behavior and you're facing a lawsuit from a former producer about creating an environment, a retaliatory environment of misogynistic behavior, that's when it becomes Great ultimately point. very problematic because it's not just a culture and reputational issue. It could be a legally implicating issue. But what's your sense of this? Because, I mean, we have seen Fox fire really prominent hosts before who had really good ratings. I mean, Bill O'Reilly. Uh, we saw what happened with Glenn Beck as well. With Tucker now leaving, I mean, it's too soon to really know and make an honest assessment. But the ratings have been down in that hour quite amount. And Newsmax, which is a rival to them, saw five times a jump in their ratings. Yeah, and you can't really serve two masters, right? You have to make a decision about what the culture of an organization is going to be. And it really, it starts at leadership. We've seen leadership over at Fox News sort of abuse, um, you know, abuse their power, Roger Ailes, that situation. But also it's the small things, it's the little things. And I think Abby Grossberg, when you look at some of the details of what she is accusing, Mm -hmm. it's just, it's a culture that's rife with misogyny from top to bottom. So... I think it's going to be bigger than one person's firing. She's the producer we just heard from mm-hmm. at the, the top of the show. Let, let's switch gears here. Disney, in its next legal move, has filed a First Amendment lawsuit, Sarah, against, against uh, Ron DeSantis. Uh, speak, and Ron DeSantis spoke out about this, dismissing it in Israel. Uh, he gave a speech there highlighting his own state's stance on fighting anti-Semitism. 
Uh, and also, he defended himself against this legal battle with Disney. On Wednesday, the company filed a lawsuit accusing DeSantis and allies of weaponizing government power to punish the company for exercising its free speech. Here is what the governor just said, and then we'll get into Disney. They had no accountability, no transparency, none of that. And, and that arrangement was not good uh, for the state of Florida. Uh, we did not think that that should continue. So we now have brought accountability. Every other Floridian has to have this, this type of, of oversight, all Florida businesses. So it's, um, uh, it's, a, it's a little bit much uh, to, to be complaining about that. I don't think the suit has merit. I think it's political. People of Florida, they understood that this was an issue. Do, did you, do you want uh, one company to have their own fiefdom or do you want everyone to live under the same laws okay so all the leading first amendment lawyers though here um including a really prominent one floyd abrams sarah say this this disney case has a lot of merit i think so and part of the reason is because ron DeSantis hasn't been shy about the fact that there is some sort of a retaliatory motive behind going after disney it's not as though he thinks that disney has violated florida rules or is taking advantage of its position it's because he wants to go after disney for the position that disney took against his don't say gay bill can we just play this is ron DeSantis on march 29th 2022, after Disney spoke out against this bill. Here's what DeSantis said then. For Disney to come out and put a statement and say that the bill should have never passed and that they are going to actively work to repeal it, I think one was fundamentally dishonest, but two, I think that crossed the line. This state is governed by the interests of the people of the state of Florida. It is not based on the demands of California corporate executives. We're going to make sure we're fighting back when people are threatening our parents and threatening our kids. I mean, that's the smoking gun, right? In this suit, what, what Disney's saying is this was targeted government retaliation. And there you have one example of money where the governor of Florida seems to be saying this is going to be a targeted retaliation in response to Disney speaking out against a bill he backed. Let's also talk about the political aspect of this, though, because this is something Nikki Haley was weighing in on this yesterday, saying Disney right. is um. welcome to come to her home state of South Carolina. Right. She was saying we don't uh, want woke culture, but she said, um, I, think, I think essentially she said the word something about um, sanctimonious That's and right. acting in that way mm -hmm. when it comes to these companies and, be, and having this retribution. Chris Christie has also spoken out against it, saying basically it undermines the values of conservatism to be going after corporations right. in the way that DeSantis is. Does it hurt him politically? I, I think it does. I mean, 75,000 employees were thinking about these are people with families, um, people who pour into the economy. There's all the related businesses. It's not just about Disney. It's about all the other business that Disney drives. And so you're picking this fight with this company, but it's also affecting communities, real people on the ground in Florida. So I think that this might backfire. And I think Nikki Haley's sanctimonious, uh, you know, little dig there was kind of a shout out to Trump, right? To say that this, this, the way that Trump is branding Ron DeSantis, I think is sticking. And this Disney case proves the point. Let me pick up one point you made though. This action is so anti-conservative. Yeah, you've covered conservatives for so Absolutely. long. What do you make of this? It, look, it, I, it, right when it happened, I said, this is the least conservative thing you can imagine. A state government punishing a private corporation for expressing an opinion. And one of, it's one of the state's largest employers in a tourism-backed yeah. economy. It is one of the least conservative things you can imagine. And if a Democratic governor did it, Republicans would be screaming from the them. rafters. Yeah. Rightly so. But can, 
the Go Republican ahead, Party has shifted. That's what you have to understand. It used to be so pro-business, so pro-corporate America, and now it's shifted to be so pro what they call family values, anti-wokeism, that the Republican Party that he's trying to cater to is not thinking about the fact that they're going after corporations. They're thinking about the fact that they're protecting family values. That's the new Republican platform. Yeah, and again, that's a smaller and smaller group you're appealing to, right? Because you're trying to tell people how to think about family, how to think about identity. It doesn't work. You can't legislate that. Okay, Sarah, just button this up for us. The thing is, though, Nikki Haley's like, come to, come to South Carolina. There's a reason that all these businesses are in Florida. Well, there's a lot of tax incentives for being oh, in Florida. I mean, a ton of these businesses yes. have been pouring there way beyond Disney. And the important thing for Disney is that it's a vacation destination. So having a reliably strong weather situation in Florida is really key. It's a place that people have come to know. People have bought houses. Literally, if you're a Disney fan, you're not leaving. You're not leaving. And by the way, if you're a Disney fan, this bridge is political. I mean, people who are Republicans, they might say they agree with Ron DeSantis, their family values, blah, blah, blah. Like at the end of the day, they still bring their four-year-olds to see Mickey Mouse. Yep. 100%. Thank you, guys, very much. Sarah, uh, John, Natasha, stick around. This morning, prosecutors say the accused Pentagon leaker had more information than previously reported what we're learning from a late-night court filing. Also, E. Jean Carroll, the former magazine columnist, suing former President Trump for battery and defamation, will be back on the stand today. she will be cross-examined. Talk about that ahead. This morning, the suspected leaker of highly classified military documents is set to appear for a detention hearing. It's 21-year-old Airman, Air National Guardsman Jack Teixeira, who was arrested at his family home, as we all remember in that dramatic scene in Massachusetts earlier this month. He is facing charges under the Espionage Act after he allegedly posted more than 100 top-secret documents to the social media platform known as Discord. In new court documents, prosecutors say the information to which the defendant had access and did access far exceeds what has publicly been disclosed on the Internet to date. In this court filing, prosecutors go on to say, quote, he appears to have taken a series of obstructive steps intended to thwart the government's ability to ascertain the full scope of what he has obtained and the universe of unauthorized users with whom he shared these materials. This is some of what they're talking about. Prosecutors say they found a tablet, a laptop, an Xbox gaming console that were smashed and in the dumpster at his home. Remember, that's where they went to apprehend him. They also show a military-themed room, an arsenal of weapons, and a target practice poster riddled with bullet holes. Authorities also found that he allegedly searched the terms Ruby Ridge, Las Vegas shooting, Mandalay Bay shooting, Buffalo Top shooting, and Uvalde, some of the worst mass shootings in this country. Yeah, we'll continue to track that detention hearing happening today. Also new overnight, a federal appeals court has cleared the way for former Vice President Mike Pence to testify to a grand jury that's investigating what happened on January 6th. The court says that the former president, Trump, cannot stop his vice president from speaking under oath about the pressure he felt to declare the results of the 2020 election invalid. Trump can still appeal to the Supreme Court. This comes ahead of new developments in another legal fight for the ex-president. In just a few hours, we expect the woman accusing former President Donald Trump of rape to take the stand again today here in New York. That is columnist E. Jean Carroll. She testified yesterday that in the mid-90s, Trump raped her in a Bergdorf Goodman's dressing room. Uh, he's previously denied that accusation. He's called it a hoax. On the stand, though, Carroll said under oath, I'm here because Donald Trump raped me. And when I wrote about it, he said he, it didn't happen. He lied and shattered my reputation and I'm here to try to get my life back. She also choked up and said the alleged incident changed her life, saying it, quote, left me unable to ever have a romantic life again. Our senior legal affairs correspondent Paula Reed joins us now. I mean, incredibly, 
powerful, disturbing testimony. Should we cross-examine today? She will be. I mean, she has waited decades for this moment to tell her story in a court of law under oath. And while we know many of the details because she's spoken about them here on CNN and with other outlets, it's a different thing to hear her in a silent courtroom speaking through tears, discussing how she encountered Donald Trump in this department store and what happened, she, what she says happened when they went in that dressing room. But today, she will have a few more questions from her attorneys on direct examination but then she will be cross-examined by Trump's attorneys. And even the most experienced defense attorneys will tell you that is a delicate task. And we know they are going to try to paint her as someone who made this up for political purposes. And her attorneys did ask her, they did try to get ahead of this, you know, talking about whether she had any political motivation. And while she admitted to not liking Trump politically, she said, I am not settling a political score. I am settling a personal score because he called me a liar repeatedly, and it has really decimated my reputation. I'm a journalist. The one thing I have is the trust of my readers. Yeah, I mean, and he's, Trump has been going off against this case. I mean, right before, you know, not only was this dramatic scene of her getting on the stand, you know, her voice shaking, testifying about what she says happened, but right before Trump was railing against this whole case on social media and the judge got involved here. I mean, this isn't a surprise, but the judge was very stern with Trump's attorneys about him weighing in on this. Yeah, he threw out a conspiracy theory that somehow she was politically motivated, she was being funded by someone else in order to, to go through with this case. And he has to really be careful because not only has he insulted her on a personal level, saying that she wasn't attractive enough for him to even consider, um, it's this, you know, the, the discrediting of a, an accuser is something that a lot of accusers face, right? It's something that's really relatable. So. If her story is powerful and if she goes through this cross-examination and comes out really believable, again, I think that's a problem for Trump. No question about it. And look, I mean, you know, this is someone who's a very distinguished journalist. She wrote a great book on Hunter Thompson. And her testimony yesterday was just heart-wrenching, right? I mean, the, this idea that she'd been unable to have a romantic life. This is a case that is almost three decades old. But um, in that cross-examination today, you know, Joe Tacopina, Trump's lawyer, is a lot of things. Delicate's not generally one of them. <laughs> um, and, and so watch out. I think for, he'd for, agree with that. Uh, yeah, I, I think he would. I don't, I don't think, proud, you know. Yeah. Um, so so that, that's going to be a very difficult needle to thread. And as you said, with the judge smacking down Trump for the public comments he's making, this is a case where you can't appeal to the court of public opinion. Yeah. This is happening in real time in a real courtroom. And if you want to say that, you have the opportunity to take the stand and answer mm -hmm. some questions about this. There are some legitimate questions in this case, as there are in all cases. Mm -hmm. But the place to, to talk about it is the courtroom, not social media. While we have you here, let's talk about the Hunter Biden meeting you were on yeah. two days ago reporting this was going to happen, that he was going to meet his legal team, was going to meet with the Justice Department legal team that has been investigating this for years. For a very long time. What do we know about what happened in this meeting what the point was? So we knew for last week, we were the first to report that Hunter Biden's attorneys had reached out to the Justice Department asking for a status update in this case, which has been going on since around 2018. And the Justice Department said, sure, come on in, we'll have a chat. Now, of course, that took on new significance after this whistleblower came forward in recent days, uh, alleging that this whole investigation has been mishandled. And yesterday we spotted one of Hunter Biden's lawyers going into the Justice Department. We've learned that the legal team met with at least one official from the tax division and one or two officials from the U.S. Attorney's Office. Now, of course, there's a Trump-appointed U.S. attorney in Delaware who stayed on after the former president left to oversee this investigation. Now, our last report on the status of the charges was last summer. Our colleague Evan Perez reported that they had whittled down 
potential charges to a few tax crimes, one charge of possible false statements connected to the purchase of a gun. But nothing has happened for nearly a year. This is the first public event in this case. But at this point, it's unclear exactly what happened in this meeting. I was told not to expect a final disposition of the case. But, you know, Hunter's lawyers really want to know what exactly is going on here. Are you going to charge him or not? Yeah, of course, they're dealing with that as they're also dealing with House Republicans investigating him as well. Paula Reed, thank you so much for sharing that reporting. John and Tasha are going to stay with us. We'll be back in just a moment. But first, we want to talk about something else that happened in Washington yesterday. Uh, a win for House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, probably the biggest one since he became House Speaker, actually, after he did get enough members, just barely, of his own party to pass the debt ceiling bill. The question right now, though, is where does this go next? We'll talk about that ahead. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. The president can no longer ignore by not negotiating. Senator Schumer, if he thinks he's got a plan, put it on the floor. See if you can pass it, and then we can go to conference. That's House Speaker Kevin McCarthy taking a small victory lap after the House passed his debt limit plan that includes Sweeping spending cuts over the next decade, but that celebration may be short-lived. The measure is dead on arrival in the Democratic-led Senate, as we have heard from Schumer, who he was just calling on there. Part of the deal that McCarthy made to become Speaker does mean it only takes one dissatisfied member of his caucus to file a discharge petition against him, forcing a vote that could remove him from power. So far, that is not an indication that that is going to happen, but there are major questions about what is ahead for Kevin McCarthy and his caucus. CNN's Lauren Fox is live on Capitol Hill with more. Lauren, of course, there were big questions about whether or not Republicans would get here when we were checking in with you about 24 hours ago. They did get here with a narrow majority, but the question is, what happens next? Yeah, this vote was a squeaker. It was about as close as you could get, Caitlin, and still get this across the finish line. In fact, the House Speaker heading to the floor yesterday, according to a source familiar with his thinking, went to the floor pretty confident he was going to have the votes, but there was still a question whether or not they were going to be able to pull this off. This was the culmination of work months in the making, trying to bring disparate factions together from the conservative and moderate wing of his party. There were more than a dozen listening sessions with the whip team over the course of the last two and a half months. And this is really just the beginning of the negotiation. Like you noted, this proposal is not going anywhere. In the Democratic-controlled Senate, the big question mark this morning, how is the White House, specifically whether Joe Biden is going to sit down once again with Kevin McCarthy? It has been almost 90 days since the two met, and there is new detail that we are getting that this debt ceiling could need to be increased as early as June, Caitlin. So that doesn't leave a lot of time. And we just don't know what the path forward is going to be. This was all about rallying Kevin McCarthy's troops, showing he had unity behind him. But where does that go from here and where does that lead? We just don't have the answer as of this morning. Yeah. And President Biden was asked about this yesterday in the Rose Garden. He said, you know, he's happy to sit down with Kevin McCarthy, but he still is insisting on a debt ceiling without all of those conditions and strings attached to it. I think, Lauren, one question I have is it was so hard for Republicans to make sure they kept everyone on board to get this passed this time. If McCarthy does sit down with Biden and Schumer and they do negotiate, how does he keep Republicans on board uh, for whatever it is they agree to? Is that a possibility that that could be a big roadblock for him? 
Yeah, I sat down yesterday with a number of Republicans who'd worked on this proposal, and they were asked repeatedly that very question, what do you do if Kevin McCarthy comes back to you with a proposal that's so different than the one that you guys worked so hard to get past and across the finish line? And their argument was they didn't want to deal in hypotheticals, that they believe in the speaker, that he's going to be able to negotiate with the president. But one interesting moment that happened yesterday behind closed doors in the conference is Ralph Norman, a conservative member who has, at times, been at odds with Speaker McCarthy, he asked him, how do I know that this bill isn't going to change significantly? He said that what he heard from the Speaker yesterday was that he is not going to bring down too watered down version of this bill, Caitlin. And I think that that is so interesting and so significant because how do you thread the needle here? I think we just don't know the answer. Yeah, those hypotheticals might become a reality very soon. Lauren, thank you so much. President Biden taking on a key issue and this race for the White House again. It's his age. He talks about how it factored into his own decision to run again. That's ahead. Also, this. Holy hail! Severe weather hit Central Texas yesterday with hail the size of tennis balls. The man who shot this video says the bull you see there is fine. Was headed for cover, though. The hail smashed windows and cars as it poured down. It is not the last of the severe weather this week, though. There is a storm threat right now across the Gulf Coast. We're going to check in with the CNN Weather Center. Stay with CNN for updates. Welcome back. We do have an update for you on this story. We've been following one of four inmates who escaped from a Mississippi jail has been found dead. Police say the charred remains of Dylan Arrington were pulled from a home about an hour north of jail, of the jail where he escaped from following a two-hour standoff with law enforcement Wednesday. Officials believe the 22-year-old also killed a pastor while on the run earlier this week. They're still searching for the three others who escaped from the Hines County Jail. Their names are Jerry Raines, Casey Grayson, and Corey Harrison. Also this morning, three major national newspapers are running a full-page ad pushing for the release of Evan Gershkovich. Of course, he is wrongly detained in Russia, Right now, yesterday actually marked a full month in captivity for the Wall Street Journal reporter who Russia is accusing of espionage. Today's full-page ad is signed by the editors and publishers of The Journal, The Washington Post, and The New York Times. It calls for his immediate release and notes, quote, reporting is not a crime. Turning to 2024 in the race for the White House, President Biden says he, in his words, took a hard look at his own age before making a decision to run. Listen to this. With regard to age, uh, I can't even say, I guess how old I am, I can't even say the number. It doesn't, it doesn't register with me. And, uh, but the only thing I can say is that um, one of the things that people are going to find out is going to see a race and they're going to judge whether or not I have it or don't have it. Here's a number, 80. Biden at 80 is the oldest president in American history. And if reelected, he'd be 86 by the end of his second term. Natasha and John are back with us. And we know from Kareem Jump here at the White House, just clearing things up, he intends to, if he wins, fulfill his full term. Yes. Right? There was some hubbub about that earlier. What do you make of how he addressed it? Um, it was not very artful. I mean, look, I know that President Biden is frustrated by the constant questions about his age, but they exist for a reason. I mean, you know, ending a second term at age 86 is unprecedented territory. Eisenhower yeah, even was Jim Clyburn said this is a really legitimate question to ask. It absolutely is. And, and it doesn't help matters when, you know, you see him getting cheat sheets for, you know, questions and interviews and things like that. He has been a consequential president, but this is a totally legitimate area of concern. And polls bear that out. And what you're referencing there is he was holding this card in that press conference yesterday 
that suggested one of the questions he was going to get at the thing from an L.A. Times reporter. The L.A. Times said the reporter did not submit it to the mm-hmm. White House in advance. I don't think it's unusual for the White House to prepare briefing materials for the president. But anyway, we'll get to that in a moment. Yeah. But on the H thing, you know, President Biden was saying is the number doesn't really register with him. It mm-hmm. does register with voters because you yes. see polls where a lot of Democratic voters who approve of his job and say he's done a good job, still say they don't really want him to be the nominee again. Right. There's the ideal and then there's the reality, though. And I think that ideally, a lot of Democratic voters in particular would prefer a younger president. But when they look at the choices, when they look at the alternative, they say, I would still rather this president that feels competent, uh, that feels, you know, that he genuinely cares and that he won't go off the rails, uh, we prefer that. And we have to remember Donald Trump is also in his 70s as well. He may not get the same scrutiny because of the confidence with which he speaks when he goes in front of a podium, but he has his moments where he says some things that are pretty off the wall, and you you wonder. You wonder about his mental acuity as well. I wonder what you think about, Charles Blow has this really interesting piece in the New York Times this morning, uh, and he talks about exactly the point you brought up, which is sort of enthusiasm in young voters. The headline is Biden's highest hurdle isn't age, it's his passion. And he points to pretty low polling among young voters uh, in this Harvard Kennedy School poll, 18 to 29 year olds, so really young voters, about enthusiasm for President Biden. Do you think there's merit to that? Yeah, I, I think it's difficult when you have a star like Obama, right? He was a star orator. But these are sort of, um, you know, once in a generation type of of characters that come out that leave that sort of impression. And for a lot of younger voters, they are still thinking of, uh, you know, that era that really made so many younger voters activate and want to come out. And the reality is it was older black voters in South Carolina who helped Mm -hmm. Joe Biden Mm -hmm. even be in the conversation. Younger uh, voters of color, Joe Biden was not their top pick when we were talking about this, you know, four years ago. So, yes, I I think it makes sense. To his benefit, more older voters vote than younger voters. That's right. So. So we'll see who shows up. Yeah. yeah. Well, and as Biden says, you know, don't don't compare me to the Almighty. Compare me to the Almighty. Oh my God, their favorite line. <laughs> That's his favorite line, and there's a reason for it. Yeah, clearly, it helped him get to the White House. That's right. Uh, all right, Natasha John, great having you here this morning. Thank you. Uh, also new this morning, uh, I'm sure in your friend circles, whatever age you are, you've been talking about these weight loss drugs, right? Ozempic and their competitors. Well, a weight loss and diabetes injectable from Eli Lilly. They're now moving to try to get the FDA to fast track it. For obesity, we'll talk to the lead doctor on this ahead. Welcome back. It could be the next big weight loss drug. Eli Lilly this morning reporting another round of results in its trazepatide drug. It's a once-weekly injection currently used to treat type 2 diabetes under the name Manjaro. But Eli Lilly is now seeking FDA approval to use it to treat obesity. According to the company's latest clinical trial, participants with type 2 diabetes who were obese or overweight lost up to 34 pounds over 16 months on this drug. The company says the most common side effects, though, are nausea, diarrhea, and vomiting. There are some other side effects we'll get into in a minute. They say that they expect to finish the submission to the FDA in a few weeks. The company says the FDA is then likely to rule as early as the end of this year on whether they can, people can use it for obesity officially. We should note this data has not been peer-reviewed or published in a medical journal. There are several questions. A big one is affordability, side effects. Let's talk about all of these, try to get some answers to these big questions with Dr. Nadia Ahmad. She is a medical director of, their, of uh, trisepatide obesity at Eli Lilly. It's good to have you. Thanks very much, doctor, for joining us. 
One question is, this study was done, obviously, by the drug company, funded by the drug company. Has any independent study been done of this drug to treat obesity that has in no way been funded by Eli Lilly? So, no, these, these are phase three clinical trials, which are the trials that you do uh, in order to test how safe a drug is and how well it works uh, before you're able to get um, approval for a certain indication. So these are the first trials that, they're, they're, that are typically done, and uh, they are, they are a standard done by uh, the companies. So can we talk about side effects? I just named the most uh, prevalent ones, according to your company. But Manjaro, right, which is the brand label name I think most people will know in terms of using this for diabetes, also lists side effects, including tumors in the thyroid, thyroid cancer, other side effects, pancreatitis, serious allergic reactions, kidney failure, severe stomach problems, changes in vision. Given those exist, is it still appropriate to market it for weight loss solely? So important to understand, trisepatide is approved as Manjaro for type 2 diabetes, for blood glucose control. So right now it's being investigated for, for weight management. And as part of that investigation, we, we look at both how effective it is, how well it works, and, and the side effect profile. And so we've seen a couple things. First, we've seen up to 16 or almost 16% weight reduction in a type 2 diabetes population that typically has a much harder time losing weight compared to people without type 2 diabetes. And then the side effect profile is actually very reassuring because it's, it's very similar to what uh, we saw in our type 2 studies for Manjaro. So uh, like you said, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, a little bit of constipation. Um, and uh, so very manageable side effects when you think about sort of the history of uh, weight loss therapeutics in the past. But there is a possibility of some of those other side effects I noted, correct? So as with any agent for, for any disease, there's always possibility of, of the more rare side effects. Uh, indeed, with, with this class of medication, what you mentioned is, is uh, certainly accurate. So this is a, the Incretin-based class of medications. And in that class, there's a, a rare incidence uh, uh, of uh, pancreatitis, which you mentioned. Um, the thyroid tumors uh, that are being referred to are seen in rodents. They're seen in the animal studies for this class of medications and not yet uh, seen in humans, but certainly people who have a history of a certain kind of thyroid cancer shouldn't get this medication, um, but that's very rare. What, one of Eli Lilly's competitors in this space is Novo Nordisk, and earlier this year they revealed that patients that had been on their uh, weight loss drug, similar one called Wagovi, risk regaining all their weight back in five years. Is this something people should understand? If you get this FDA approval, your drug is one that they're gonna to have to take for life? This is such an important question. And I think it's, it's really interesting for us to reflect on why this question gets asked so much. Why do we ask this for, for weight management and for obesity? If you go to the doctor for high blood pressure, for heart disease, asthma, arthritis, even HIV, we, we don't ask the question of, do I have to take a medication for life? And I think that's because as a society, we understand that those are chronic diseases that need chronic treatment. And I think we really need to embrace and, and, and acknowledge as a society that when we're talking about weight management, we're talking about obesity 
a chronic, serious med medical disease, disease that deserves treatment. So, and so if it's chronic, treatment is often chronic. Okay, so that sounds like a yes to me, but you're justifying why it's, why it's a yes. Okay, let's move on to the cost. You guys don't have a, a price tag out there yet, is that right? Yes, I can't okay. really ref uh, speak to the okay. I'm on the development side of the company, but... Okay, yes, so similar not, not drugs, so just to point a comparison for people to understand, similar drugs on the market for obesity now cost between $1,300 and $1,500 a month without insurance. And we don't know if insurance is going to cover this for most folks. Will Eli Lilly help cover that cost? It's a ton of money for low-income individuals. So I think, I think it's really important to understand how complex um, the, the, the issue is about access. Right. So I think we're committed to getting access to the to for the people that need it. And that's going to require all of us to work together. Right. Obesity is the largest disease epidemic we have uh, in society today and probably in the history of of, of mankind. Right? So it, we're working with advocacy organizations, uh, pair organizations. Um, we have to come together for, as, as, as a government, as a society to really figure out. How are we going to get the therapies that are being innovated today to the right people uh, that need them around the world? And we are, we're committed to that and a lot of efforts in that but, space. But help us understand what that means, because obviously there will be lobbying to get it covered by Medicare, for example, Medicaid. But you guys stand to make a ton of money on this. And the thought that it may only be accessible by the richest folks, I think, is troubling to some people. Are there steps that Eli Lilly would take to lower the cost for those that just don't have that much money? Well, I think, again, we are, you know, obesity affects, as you're saying, the low income um, minority populations and, and, you know, even more so than we're, we're very cognizant of that. And, and as a society and as and myself as a clinician uh, as well. And I think, again, this is why we are so committed to working on the access. Um, it's 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 not as simple as as, as price, right? It is. It is uh, about the coverage. It is about providers prescribing it, it's about being able to take it in a, a long term and, and really manage the disease. Um, so, again, a very complex issue. And I think that, um, you know, we have to work together and we are working together with the organizations that, that I mentioned um, in order to do our part uh, as, as well as, you know, work with others to help them do theirs. Hey, Dr. Uh, Nadia Ahmed, thank you. As I said, a lot of people are talking about this, so we'll watch closely and see what happens with the FDA process. I really appreciate your time this morning. Thanks. Absolutely. Thanks. Yeah, something everyone will be watching definitely yeah. very closely. Also this morning here in New York City, soon going to feel the heat. Miami beating out the Bucks in an explosive overtime win. They are now going to face the Knicks. We'll show you the game highlights next. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. What a ball game is right. Jimmy Butler and the Heat eliminated the top-seeded Bucks from the NBA playoffs in an overtime stunner. Andy Scholes is here. Andy, 
One of the biggest upsets that we have seen, I think, in NBA history. Jimmy Butler, I mean, I feel like I've been talking about him all week, but that was amazing play calling. She has been talking it's what, about it all week, yeah. by the way. Guys, it's why, yeah, it's why we call him Playoff Jimmy, right? And, and he's just so incredible every time the playoffs come around. And just the sixth time in NBA history, a one seed has lost to an eight seed in the first round. And think about this, Bucks were the favorites to win it all. They ended up winning just one playoff game, and it was playoff. Jimmy rallying the Heat once again in game five. They were down 16 in the fourth, came all the way back, and Butler with his bucket in the final second sent the game to overtime. Butler had 42 points. The Heat had a two-point lead then in the extra period, and with time winding down, the Bucks didn't even get a shot off. Just a stunner in this one as Miami wins it in five. But listen to what Giannis had to say after the game when he was asked if this season was a failure for the Bucks. Do you get a promotion every year on your job? No, right? So every year you work is a failure. Yes or no? No. Every every year you work, you work towards something, towards a goal, right? Which is to get a promotion, to be able to uh, take care of your family, to be able, I don't know, um, provide the house for them or take care of your parents. You work towards a goal. It's not a failure. It's steps to success. Yeah, so some strong words there from Giannis. Guys, uh, Heat now going to face the Knicks in round number two. The Knicks winning a series for just the second time in 23 years. Those fans pretty excited there uh, in Manhattan. Oh, yeah. It's going to be epic. Caitlin's excited. Poppy's, Poppy's CNN, also excited. CNN This Morning continues right now. Thanks, Andy. National Guardsmen suspected of leaking classified documents set to appear in court today. Prosecutors say the information Jack Teixeira took far exceeds what's been reported. When authorities searched the property, they found a tablet, laptop, and gaming console smashed inside a dumpster at the house. Good evening, it's Tucker Carlson. Tucker Carlson speaking out tonight after his abrupt firing from Fox. The New York Times is reporting on what it says helped lead to the breaking point, quote, between Fox News and Tucker Carlson. In Rupert Murdoch's empire, no one can be bigger than the Fox News brand. And I think these messages indicate that Tucker Carlson clearly thought that he was. The yeas are 217, the nays are 215, the bill is passed. The president can no longer put this economy in jeopardy. We lifted the debt limit. We've sent it to the Senate. We've done our job. The Democratic-controlled Senate and White House won't back McCarthy's plan. It's important for people to understand that the debt ceiling and our future spending are two totally different things. Eugene Carroll took the stand in her lawsuit against former President Trump. Carroll began her testimony with the statement, I am here today because Donald Trump raped me. Trump's team, in opening statements, they said this never happened. Full stop. On Thursday, Carroll will continue to face questions from her attorneys, and then she will face cross-examination by Trump's lawyers. A giant panda has been caught up in geopolitical tensions between Washington and Beijing. Chinese state media says Yaya the panda landed in Shanghai just a short while ago. Many Chinese people are accusing the United States of mistreating Yaya. And the anti-American outrage is very serious. Many on Chinese social media are saying, now that China is a global superpower, maybe it should end this panda diplomacy. Good morning, everyone. Happy Thursday. Happy We've got Thursday. a lot of headlines we're following here today. This one is an amazing story of what we're now learning in court as we are hearing more about the Air National Guardsman who is accused of leaking classified military documents, now hearing that he took far more information than was previously reported. 
Last night in a new court filing, prosecutors said that the 20, that the information that the 21-year-old Jack Teixeira accessed, quote, far exceeds what was shared on the Internet. And in a matter of hours, he is set to appear in a federal court in Massachusetts. What prosecutors are asking for is for the judge to keep him behind bars until a trial. Teixeira was arrested in dramatic fashion two weeks ago, accused of posting classified material online, and now he is facing charges under the Espionage Act. CNN's Jason Carroll is live outside the courthouse in Worcester. Jason, prosecutors released a lot of information, and they're not only saying that he poses a serious flight risk, they believe he may still have access to information that they say hostile nations would like to get their hands on. Right. And that 11th hour court filing, I mean, it was incredible, Caitlin. I mean, it was just packed with new information about the government's case, including new allegations that Teixeira actually viewed hundreds of classified documents, not dozens, but hundreds. That was a number that we didn't know about before. Pro, uh, prosecutors are worried that if he was to get out on bail, that he would not only present a risk to the country, to himself and to others. Court documents filed by the U.S. Attorney's Office argue the alleged leaker of classified documents, Jack Teixeira, should not be released on bail while he awaits trial, claiming he poses a serious flight risk, writing he could take refuge with a foreign adversary to avoid the reach of U.S. law. Prosecutors claim that the information Teixeira allegedly accessed far exceeds what has been disclosed on the Internet, and therefore he poses an ongoing risk both to the national security of the United States and to the community. Included in the filing are chilling pictures from the search warrant executed on Teixeira's bedroom, showing a gun locker next to his bed containing multiple weapons, including an AK-style high-capacity weapon, handguns, shotguns, rifles, and a gas mask. Prosecutors say law enforcement also found a smashed tablet, laptop, and a gaming console in a dumpster at the house. The alleged leaker has also obstructed justice, according to prosecutors, by telling those he was communicating with online to delete all messages and if anyone comes looking, don't tell them expletive. Also alleging he, quote, deleted the social media server where he posted government information and procured a new phone number and email address. Prosecutors say his history surrounding guns raises questions as to why he was a candidate for the Air National Guard. The court document states in 2018, Teixeira was suspended while still in high school after a classmate allegedly overheard him make remarks about guns and make racial threats. That same year, prosecutors say he applied for a firearms ID card but was denied due to the concerns of the local police department over the defendant's remarks at his high school. Court documents mention his social media posts reviewed by the FBI. One post from last November reads, I hope ISIS goes through with their attack plan and creates a massacre at the World Cup. Further writing, if I had my way, I'd kill a ton of people. Seriously, I would be forcibly culling the weak-minded. Prosecutors say the defense is indicating they may ask the judge to release Teixeira to his father's home. Warning, the defendant has proven to be nothing short of deceptive and coercive, exposing others to peril in pursuit of his own freedom. 
And Caitlin, as for those classified documents, prosecutors worry that if he were to get out on bail, there's a deep concern that he still, still might have access to some of those classified documents, which is why they say he needs to remain right where he is. Caitlin. Yeah, that hearing happening today. We'll see what the judge decides. Jason Carroll, thank you. Tucker Carlson breaking his silence after Fox News fired him. He released this video yesterday on Twitter as new and really ugly details emerge about why the network cut ties with its primetime star. Carlson did not mention Fox by name in this video, but the New York Times is now reporting Fox executives reached a breaking point on the eve of the Dominion trial when they found out what Carlson had said in highly offensive text messages that were redacted in these legal filings. Tucker didn't mention that in the video. Here's a clip. When honest people say what's true, calmly and without embarrassment, they become powerful. At the same time, the liars who've been trying to silence them shrink and they become weaker. That's the iron law of the universe. True things prevail. CNN media analyst, Axios media reporter Sarah Fisher back with us. So, I mean, there's two things going on here. There's what Tucker said and what he was sort of implying there. And then there's this stunning New York Times reporting about even worse than we thought text messages. Yeah, so let's break down the New York Times reporting okay. first. I think that the text messages matter because when you see a huge cable news star just get fired overnight and you don't have a reasonable explanation, you rely on good reporting to explain to you what actually happened. And what actually happened matters because Fox is facing other lawsuits, right? They are facing a lawsuit from one of its former producers who alleges that it was a very misogynistic culture at Fox. These text messages for the New York Times include potentially information that Tucker Carlson was saying about basically using the C word, using miso misogynistic language that could come back to bite Fox in its future lawsuits. So that's one piece of it. Let's go to the other piece, which is his video last night. Notable that he did not mention the firing at all did not mention Fox News at all, did not mention where he's going. This was sort of Tucker Carlson's pep rally. It's his way to stay relevant to viewers, to make sure that they continue, and the news cycle continues to follow him, so that when he decides he's doing something next, we are all ready to tune in. So these messages are redacted now, but a lot of news outlets are challenging mm -hmm. trying to get them unredacted. So is there a chance we could actually see what the messages were. Yes, there is a chance. And I think that's also one of the reasons why Fox's management felt like they had to act because such a huge trove of information has come out in pretrial discovery. Yeah. And it has been embarrassing. But if this were to come out, then you have this sort of drip, drip, drip scenario where even though they've settled, if more things continue to come out ahead of the lawsuit that they have with the ex-producer, this $2.7 billion lawsuit that they have with Smartmatic, it could put them in at best a damaging reputationally perspective, but at worst a legally incriminating position. Yeah. Sarah, thank you very much. We'll keep following it. Yeah, really fascinating. Also this morning at the White House, they are standing by the demand that they say House Republicans need to raise the debt limit without any conditions. House Republicans, as we watched closely on Capitol Hill yesterday, narrowly passed a bill to raise the debt ceiling. It cuts spending, and it's an effort to force President Biden to the negotiating table. It's not actually going to happen. Senator Schumer has said it's dead on arrival over in the Senate. CNN's Arlette Signs is tracking all this live from the White House. Uh, good morning, Arlette. You saw President Biden in the Rose Garden yesterday saying he's not going to negotiate when it comes to the debt limit. What's the sense at the White House of what's happening next year? 
Well, Caitlin, for the time being, it appears the White House is holding firm in its position that President Biden will not negotiate with House Speaker Kevin McCarthy over the debt ceiling. This is a position that the White House has had for months, insisting that Republicans up on Capitol Hill, Democrats need to raise the debt ceiling without any conditions attached to it. House Speaker McCarthy had hoped that passing this bill over in the House would eventually push the White House to the negotiating table. But yesterday, President Biden in the Rose Garden told reporters that he's willing to sit down with McCarthy to talk about larger budgetary issues, but he's not going to budge when it comes to demanding a clean debt ceiling. Of course, the clock is ticking as the debt ceiling deadline could potentially need to be raised uh, by early June. That's also a date that could shift, but it really comes at a precarious time as uh, a potential default would have catastrophic consequences on the uh, U.S. economy. But for the time being, the White House stance is holding firm, and they've insisted that that bill that House Speaker McCarthy was able to get passed in the House will not become law. And Arlette, I mentioned President Biden in the Rose Garden yesterday during that press conference. There was also a moment in that press conference where a photographer captured the notes that President Biden was holding in his hand. And there appeared to be one with the reporter that he was going to call on, the first reporter he called on during that press conference. And now there are allegations about whether or not he had the question in advance. What is the White House saying about what happened here? Well, Caitlin, it's not uncommon for the White House to prepare these types of briefing materials for the president, but it's the level of specificity that is in the spotlight in this moment. As you noted, that note card included the name and photo of a reporter and also a possible question. Now, it's worth noting that her question uh, was not identical to what was on that note card, and the, her outlet uh, says that they did not submit any questions to the White House ahead of this press conference. But we have seen the president in the past carrying around these note, uh, note cards with details about the events, where he needs to go, the people that he's meeting with. Now, this, these types of moments are things that Republicans have seized on, especially as they tr have tried to highlight President Biden's age. Yesterday, President Biden said that he took a hard look at his own age when deciding to run in 2024. He ultimately decided to move forward with that reelection, and he has said it will be up to the voters to decide whether he deserves a second term. Yeah, and we should note, they did have a press conference yesterday. There have been historically few press conferences mm -hmm. in this administration. Arlette, thanks for clearing that up. Thank you. A new twist in the drawn-out battle between Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and Disney. Disney striking back against DeSantis and other officials accusing them in a lawsuit of retaliating against the entertainment giant for its opposition to the so-called Don't Say Gay bill. The governor's office responding to the suit, saying in part, we're unaware of any legal right that a company has to operate its own government or maintain special privileges not held by other businesses in the state. Well, earlier this morning in Israel, where Governor DeSantis is, here's what he said. In fact, they've been treated much different than Universal, SeaWorld, and all these other places. And so they're upset because they're actually having to live by the same rules as everybody else. They don't want to have to pay the same taxes as everybody else. And they want to be able uh, to control uh, things without proper oversight, which every other Floridian has to have this this type of, of oversight, all Florida businesses. So it's, um, uh, it's, a, it's a little bit much uh, to, to be complaining about that. I don't think the suit has merit. I think it's political. I think they filed, you know, in Tallahassee for a reason because they're trying to, to generate, um, you know, some, some, some district court decision. But we're very confident on the law. And if all right, how did we get here? CNN senior legal analyst and former federal prosecutor Ellie Honig is with us. For history, people just sort of getting up to speed on this. Yeah. 
Fascinating backstory here, Poppy. So it actually begins back in 1967 when Walt Disney, the individual, not the company, was looking to build his next amusement park. Now, he identified this tract of land in central Florida, which was at the time essentially undeveloped. And he ends up entering into an agreement between Disney and the state of Florida to create what they call these special improvement districts. Now, that district is about 40 square miles, that's not to scale, but it's about 40 (laughs) square miles. And it basically gave Disney the right and the legal power to operate the way a municipal government would, to deal with things like land use and development, utilities, sanitation, taxation, and other things. Important to know, there is a misperception that Disney got unique treatment here. There actually are now over 1,800 of these special districts all around Florida. They're meant to encourage industry and investment. And finally, while Disney does certainly get financial benefits out of there, they're not not paying taxes. They've actually paid over $1 billion annually in taxes for the last few years. Now, everything was fine for about 55 years until last year when Florida passed and Governor DeSantis signed the Parental Rights in Education Act. As you said, this is known by some as the don't say gay bill. And this basically says that public schools cannot teach students kindergarten through third grade about sexual identity and orientation. Oh, it's now, just extended to through 12th grade. Now. Exactly. With varying restrictions yeah. as you move up the ages. Now, Disney came out publicly against that law. They said, quote, we oppose any legislation that infringes on basic human rights and stand in solidarity and support our LGBTQIA plus cast. And that triggered Ron DeSantis, who lashed out at Disney, called them, quote, woke Disney, and said they are echoing Democrat propaganda. Now we get into the power struggle that leads to the lawsuit. That improvement district is run by a five-member board. Now, historically, essentially Disney got to appoint those five members. But Florida passed new laws basically giving that power over to the governor, to Ron DeSantis, so he makes clear he's going to get rid of All five of these people put his own people in. But on the way out the door, the old board, the Disney board, enters into these new contracts that will last for 30 years. And then yesterday, the new board has just come in and they say, no, those contracts are void. We're not honoring them. Hence our lawsuit. Okay, so now Disney is saying you're muzzling us. Yes. You are violating our First Amendment, right? You can't do that. We know from the Supreme Court. Corporations have a First Amendment right now. They do. So where does this go? So Disney's actually making two major claims in its complaint. The first one is a straightforward contracts argument. We We both took contracts first year in law school, and they're saying basically this is binding. Even though the old board entered these contracts on its way out the door, they were still in power. It's legitimate. And they're arguing, first of all, that those contracts are valid. They're also arguing a concept called reliance, which, of course, you'll remember from school as well, which means we planned around these contracts. Disney actually says we were planning to invest $17 billion and create 13,000 new jobs. And then there's the First Amendment claim. Disney's claims that it's being singled out for its political speech. They write in the complaint, Disney expressed its opinion on state legislation and was then punished by the state for doing so. And DeSantis has done that time and again. He made clear, he said, Disney and other woke corporations won't get away with peddling their unchecked pressure campaign any longer. So they're arguing he struck it back at them for their political speech. And really quickly, the judge is fascinating. So the judge is an Obama appointee. He's sort of an eccentric. He leans liberal, but he's unpredictable. He's actually ruled against DeSantis on other free speech Mm -hmm. cases. He actually compared DeSantis to George Orwell in 1984. Okay, we'll watch. Ellie, thank you. That was so comprehensive and helpful. Appreciate it. Caitlin. All right. Switching topics quite a bit. Yaya the giant panda has now arrived back in her Chinese homeland this morning after she left the Memphis Zoo yesterday. 
was quite a journey where she had lived for the last 20 years. The panda arrived in America with her playmate Lele as part of the U.S.-China friendship at the time. It was 20 years ago. Things have changed quite a bit. Videos showing the once fluffy panda looking thin in recent months sparked outrage in China, though, as some accused the zoo of mistreatment and fueling controversy on social media. Allegations, I should note, that the zoo has denied. CNN's Selena Wang joins us from Beijing. Uh, Selena, obviously, you know, there are some questions about whether or not this is representative of the broader distrust between the U.S. and China. But Yaya has become this kind of symbol of what's going on here. Tell us what's going on now that she's back in China. Yeah, well, it was a long journey indeed. And really the backdrop of all of this is growing anti-American sentiment here in China. She had a 16-hour FedEx flight to get from America to China. She'll eventually settle down in the Beijing Zoo. And for so many people here, this moment could not have come soon enough because for months, many in China have been petitioning for the 22-year-old panda to come home, accusing the zoo of mistreatment, again, against the backdrop of growing U.S.-China tensions. Now, in contrast, videos of Russian pandas looking healthy and active have also been going viral on Chinese social media, many claiming it's proof that Russia is treating the Chinese bears a lot better. Now, key information here is that Chinese and American scientists have concluded that Yaya has received excellent care in America, and she only looks that way because of a genetic condition. But that message has not been getting through. I went to the Beijing Zoo's panda exhibit just a few days ago and take a listen to what people told me. An 11-year-old boy tells me, I heard the U.S. is treating the panda poorly. This man says, isn't Russia taking good care of pandas? Pandas are happy over there, not like in the U.S. And this man with his granddaughter tells me, pandas in Russia are very happy. Why? Russians and Chinese are friends. At least Russia is not sanctioning China. So, Caitlin, China loans its pandas out to countries as a symbol of friendship and goodwill. America has not received any pandas in two decades. And now, Yaya's return back to China, it's symbolic not of growing friendship, but growing animosity between two global superpowers. Yeah, and you can't ignore how Chinese state media has taken on kind of this pro-Russia stance ever since Russia invaded Ukraine as well. Important context to all of this. Selena, thank you. Donald Trump's accuser taking the stand again today, telling her story of how the former president, she says, raped her years ago in a department store dressing room. We will explain all of it to you in her testimony ahead. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. All right, today, a woman who is accusing former President Trump of rape is expected to face questioning from his attorneys. This is E. Jean Carroll. You can see her getting out of her car outside the courthouse. She took the stand in a federal courtroom answering questions from her attorney yesterday. She told the jury, quote, I'm here because Donald Trump raped me. And when I wrote about it, he said it didn't happen. He lied and shattered my reputation. And I'm here to try and get my life back. The magazine columnist says that in the mid-1990s, she ran into Trump at Bergdorf Goodman's here in New York. She says that he asked her for help picking out a gift and eventually told her to try on some lingerie. She says he then followed her into the dressing room and forced himself on her. On the stand, she said, quote, that open door has plagued me for years because I just walked into it, walked in. Carol says that she has suffered psychological damage and has not had a romantic relationship since that alleged rape. At one point, she broke down in tears on the stand. Happy tears, though, she said, because she is finally getting her day in court. We should note, former President Trump has repeatedly denied these accusations, calling it a, quote, made-up scam, In opening statements, his attorney said that Carol made up the story for her own personal gain. 
For more perspective on this, let's bring in former federal prosecutor and criminal defense attorney Katie Cherkasky. Thanks so much for being here. It's just remarkable in and of itself to see her uh, mm -hmm. on set after what happened with the statute of limitations and the fact that she can tell her story. Um, what's your sense of what's going to happen today, though? Because she will be cross-examined by his attorney. Sure. I mean, it's been a long time coming. This case has been around for many years. And the case is interesting because it's a civil defamation case, but it deals with an allegation, obviously, of rape, sexual assault. So Eugene Carroll's side, the plaintiff side, has to essentially show that it's more likely than not she is telling the truth about this. And there is good evidence on her side. There's also good attacks on the credibility that are going to come from Trump's attorneys. And that's kind of what we're going to see today with the cross-examination. Can you get into what... What you mean by good attacks? Because we were talking in the last hour about the fact that it's Joe Tecpino, the president's lawyer, who's going to cross her. You have to be delicate, especially in a cross-examination of, of a witness who says they were raped by your client. Absolutely. And the credibility of any witness is obviously going to be at issue, especially in a defamation trial. That's kind of the bottom line. And one of the ways that attorneys attack credibility is to go after the bias, motive and interests of the person providing the testimony and get into why they are providing that testimony. So you're going to always have questions about lack of specificity, inconsistencies, delays in reports and all of these sort of factual issues that are there on top of the potential motivations that she might have had to make this claim for personal gain or financial gain. There was a book that came out um, about this, obviously. And many of these things were brought out by her attorneys on the direct examination to try to right. take some of the sting out of that, of make sure that she could explain that to the jury, because that's obviously going to be the, the crux of the attack there. But ultimately, this is a credibility case. And there is things that she was, is going to have to contend with in, in terms of the, the massive delay in the report and some of the lack of specificity that's there. But on the other side, there is many pieces of evidence coming in that show that Donald Trump had a propensity to commit the sort of act. And that sort of evidence is actually very strong. Mm. So the fact that the judge let in the Access Hollywood tape, the yeah. allegations from some of the other accusers, that is very beneficial to E. Jean Carroll's side of the case. So th they're trying to say that there's a pattern here. That's what her attorneys are arguing. Right. She's on the stand. Is there any chance Trump would take the stand? Trump, who often thinks he can sway a jury or reporters or world leaders in his favor? Well, you I don't think that there's strategically any reason for him to. I wonder if he can stop himself from wanting to do that. Obviously, he's been commenting on the case from outside the courtroom, mm -hmm. but I don't believe that he will testify. I think they're going to play some of his and, deposition. And the judge sort of admonishing Trump's lawyers oh, yeah. for that, saying that they could, this, what Trump has been saying and posting about it, calling it a scam and fake, could put him in further liability, jeopardy. Well, there's a couple things that could happen with that. So if the judge has asked and warned him not to discuss the case, so there could be a potential contempt finding. There could also be an allegation that he's incited some sort of violence if people get behind him and think that he is being targeted hmm. in that sense. And obviously, there's the, the point is that he is at trial in the first place because he said this didn't happen. So is this a second defamatory statement? I think that that's a real possibility here, too. If she wins the trial and he's continuing to make further defamatory statements, then that's actionable and could be, it's on summary really judgment, found against him. So certainly. And summary judgment, meaning they don't even go to trial. Yeah. They just say. Could be the case, yeah, if she's yeah. if he's found liable here. Thank so you, Absolutely, Katie. yeah. Thanks, Thank Katie. you. This morning, Americans are stuck in Sudan. They say they are being forced to make, quote, life or death decisions. They have a new message for the U.S. government this morning. Also, clemency denied for Oklahoma death row inmate Richard Glossop, even though the parole board's vote ended in a 2-2 tie. Where can this possibly go now as his execution date approaches? 
I'm not a murderer, and I don't deserve to die for this. parole board in Oklahoma has declined to spare the life of death row inmate Richard Glossop after a 2-2 tie vote. He is now scheduled to be executed May 18th. The six-year-old Glossop is a former hotel manager. He was convicted of ordering the murder of his boss back in 1997. To be clear, he was accused of being the mastermind, not actually committing that murder. But recent investigations have cast doubt on his conviction. Glossop's case has drawn many supporters, very public ones, state lawmakers, Kim Kardashian, even Oklahoma's attorney general, who in a very unprecedented move, attended yesterday's board meeting to advocate for clemency. One Republican state lawmaker told CNN the case highlights a systemic problem in Oklahoma. Yes, I will stand against the death penalty and I will stand against the DAs of Oklahoma uh, who believe that uh, they never make mistakes and they just want everyone to rubber stamp and believe that everything they say and do is clear and that we should just approve them to put people to death because they say so. It's, it's egregious. Joining us now is Bryn Gingrass, who's been covering this case for a long time. I mean, to hear that from a Republican State lawmaker in Oklahoma? Death penalty Republican yeah. state lawmaker. Yeah, and no, he wasn't the only one. There were others who actually spoke at this uh, hearing yesterday. It lasted for two and a half hours. Now, I want to clear something up because this is so astounding to me watching it yesterday, is that this panel, uh, uh, the uh, Board of Parole, Pardon and Parole, it's a five-member panel. One person had to recuse themselves because they are the husband of the chief prosecutor who prosecuted this Glossop case in 2004. So that leaves you down to four people in this panel, and it was a 2-2 vote. And since there's no majority, that means clemency was not granted. Now, that is something that the attorney for Glossop is going to challenge. He already has. And Kevin McDougal, who you just heard from there, he's going to go right—he went right to the governor's office after that hearing uh, to, to arrange a meeting to figure out what next steps are. But as Don Knight said yesterday, Richard Glossop, he's down, but he's not out. Many people spoke in favor of this clemency yesterday. Again, the attorney general, his attorney, who said Richard Glossop has been behind bars for 26 years. The only infraction that he has is having a charging cable in his possession. Even his wife spoke out and Glossop himself. I want you to hear from him. I'm not a murderer. And I don't deserve to die for this. Please give Governor Stitt a chance to commute my sentence. Now, the victim's family, Barry Van Treese, m many members spoke out at this hearing as well. They said they want justice. They wanted this execution to move forward. Again, clemency has not uh, been granted. What happens next? Well, Knight is now going to the U.S. Supreme Court. Yeah, the, they already filed. They already filed. Um, the, you know, the governor can issue a reprieve, push this execution back 60 days. It's unclear if that's going to happen. But really, again, time is running out. There really aren't many options left. Just for so struck by the attorney general saying yesterday, I believe it would be a grave injustice to ex execute an individual whose trial conviction was beset by a litany of errors. And now with a 2-2 tie vote... On top of that, it, it just seems, I mean, he said it, it's, it's, a, it's a problem in this state. How do you even have a hearing when there aren't all five members there? You, you don't have a fair shot, it seems. But this is something they have to address in Oklahoma. Well, all right, Brent, thank you so much. All right. We are getting reports of new clashes and gunfire in the capital of Sudan surrounding areas this morning, undermining the shaky, iffy 72-hour ceasefire that was set to expire today.
Food and medicine supplies dwindling, hospitals overrun with the wounded as diplomats and foreign nationals scramble to leave the country. There's mounting anger from Americans who've been left to navigate the dangers on their own and who feel abandoned, frankly, by the U.S. government. Our Kylie Atwood is live at the State Department. Kylie, we were hearing earlier this week reporting from our colleague Sam Kiley that the U.S. was thinking about some more evacuation plans at the port of Sudan, et cetera. What can you tell us about where all of this stands now? I know you spoke to some of these Americans who are still stuck there. Yeah, well, the family members that we spoke to, these are Americans in the U.S. who are helping their American family members in Sudan get out of the country, essentially feel like they're doing it on their own. They're frustrated by the lack of support as they navigate this complex and obviously dangerous situation. One American telling us that she was disgusted by the lack of support that they have received for these American citizens who are obviously trying to navigate uh, to safety right now. And these Americans are also describing to us what the conditions are like on the ground for their family members. Listen to what they, they had to say. They're stuck at the border. There's no water. There's no food. The border is essentially a humanitarian crisis. Um, and it is, they're not the only Americans who are facing this issue. The wait time at the border is many days. Um, children are crying. Um, and they're just laying on the ground. It's a desert. Even if you have cash, you can't buy anything because there's nothing. It's a desert and they're just stranded. Now, we should note that the U.S. government says that they are in close contact with these citizens who are trying to get out of the country, that they are actively facilitating these evacuations. But what they aren't doing is flying out these American citizens. So we know that there was that evacuation of the U.S. diplomats over the weekend. And there are no plans at this point to do that for these citizens, with the U.S. government saying that it would actually be more dangerous for the citizens if they did that. So what they're doing is directing them to these overland routes. Now, some of the Americans we talked to haven't had a lot of back and forth with the state department to even identify those overland routes that are being run by other countries and other multilateral organizations. We know that the U.S. government is flying uh, some drones overhead to make sure that they don't run into violence along the way. But the bottom line here is that they, they just feel that they're navigating an incredibly tense, troublesome situation without the full support yeah. of the U.S. government. Wow, Kylie, I'm so glad that you spoke with them. We're wishing all of them well. Thank you very much. Also this morning, the market for injectable weight loss drugs might be getting bigger. We're going to discuss the safety, though, and the wider implications of this craze. <clears throat> Before that, we go to break, and there's this. <laughs> Around 1,500 items that once belonged to the late Freddie Mercury are going up for auction, including never-before-seen handwritten draft lyric to that famous song, We Are the Champions, also for grabs, his Tiffany's mustache comb, his guitar, and his famous crown with the accompanying cloak, expected to sell for $100,000. Okay, I love Freddie Mercury, so I'm yeah. gonna bid on this stuff. New this morning, pharmaceutical giant Eli Lilly says its injectable drug 
trizepatide help people with a diet with diabetes lose an average of 34 pounds over 17 months. It's currently used and approved by the FDA just to treat type 2 diabetes, but they want the FDA to approve it to treat just obesity. I spoke with the company's medical director in the last hour. I think we really need to embrace and, and, and acknowledge as a society that when we're talking about weight management, we're talking about obesity, a chronic, serious med medical disease, disease that deserves treatment. So, and so if it's chronic, treatment is often chronic. So if they get that approval, it would add to the current ongoing craze over Ozempic, another drug meant for diabetes. It has become such a weight loss fad for non-diabetics that experts say it's contributing to a shortage of the drug for those with diabetes. Let's talk about all of this with Dr. Dhruv Kular. He's a physician and assistant professor of health policy at Weill Cornell Medical and a contributor to The New Yorker and Emmy, founder of True Beauty Foundation Model and appreci Body Appreciation Advocate. I love that title. It's great Thank to have you, you guys Thank very, you. very, very much. Um, so a lot of questions whether the FDA is going to approve this, but I think it's the bigger question of what does this do to us as society, that I think we've made a lot of progress on body appreciation in recent years, or I hope we have. And yes. now is it just like, you should be on Ozempic or Trizepatide because you can get skinnier? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. I think, you know, recognizing what these drugs are meant to do and how they work, I think is the first step to understanding the ways in which they might be misused. And so these drugs originally were developed as diabetes drugs. They are very effective for that indication, and they are very effective for people who have excess weight, who are obese, to lose weight. And so what they do, uh, at least Ozempic and Wegovy, these drugs work by uh, mimicking a hormone called GLP-1. And what that does is it's a hormone that's produced in our intestines after we eat. It does a few things. It goes to our pancreas. It, uh, it encourages our pancreas to secrete insulin, lowers our blood sugar, really important for people with diabetes. It also affects our stomach, and so it has our stomach empty more slowly, so we feel more full, and it has receptors in the brain to make us, again, feel more full and eat less. And for those reasons, it's very effective. People end up losing 15, sometimes 20% of their body weight uh, if they are in that higher BMI category. Now, when we get to people who are trying to lose a few weight, uh, a few pounds, who are of normal weight, who are doing it for cosmetic reasons, that's where I think it becomes more problematic and more controversial. Absolutely. It really is. What are your concerns with it? I'm concerned that we're going to be triggering mass population that really doesn't need the drug like the diabetes 2 and trigger those that are susceptible for eating disorders to fall into this. And this obsession with the thinnest at any cost, uh, there's, we did so much work. You know, it seems like we've done so much work to get and embrace that all bodies are good bodies. Let's just put that on the table. And it's up to us to take care of each one, but not to fall into this obsession that we have to be something that we, you know, 20 pounds. Well, what, what, if we need to lose 20 pounds, if that's not good for our heart and it, or maybe not, we don't need to lose 20 pounds. Why do we have to use another person's, another person's drug that needs it for life-giving fortitude? Even if there is enough on the market and we could stop having the shortage for some diabetes patients, which is really troubling, there's also the accessibility issue with the, the comparable drugs are 1500 or 1300 
And there's a real issue of, so if you're on a lower, I mean, any any normal income, you can't pay that. That's a lot of money. So then is it just going to be the rich people who want to be thin? That's the problem also. For the people who aren't rich and they're putting all their money into these drugs, how long is it going to sustain? Well, you have to take it forever. The doctor told doctor, us that. Well, you can't. That's the thing is that once you stop taking it, you gain the weight back, right? That's exactly right. So there's a few issues here. One is that um, there are side effects of these medications. And so fortunately, they're not as severe as prior generations of weight loss medications that cause really severe cardiovascular complications. In this case, most of the complications are gastrointestinal. People uh, suffer nausea, diarrhea, uh, vomiting. They have these types of, uh, uh, they can have these types of side effects in any case. The other issue is that really when you stop taking the medications, the weight comes back. And so for a lot of people, this has to be a lifelong uh, type of enterprise. And if it's not covered by insurance, and at this point it is not covered by Medicare, most Medicaid programs, they do not cover it purely for weight loss. They will cover it for diabetes, Mm. but not purely for weight loss. And for people to pay $800, $1,100, $1,300 a month, uh, every month for years and years, that is not a sustainable proposition. That's exactly right. But I feel like we're all poo-pooing on this a little. Look, I'm skeptical of... For, for certain reasons, but I also recognize how severe of a health crisis obesity is, especially in America. Yeah, but that's so if for this them. is that effective, it's 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 effective for people with type two diabetes. So that's what it's designed for. For anyone else that has either uh, they they in their minds want to lose a little bit of weight. We've, we have to go back to let the people who need the drug oh, get the drug. But what about obese? If it works so well for obesity without type 2 diabetes, should so, we be thinking about this well, for those not people just for obesity? But it's not sustainable. If you're going to, well, it's going to help people with type 2 diabetes. And that's really the, the point. We're taking away a drug from people who actually could really use this Unless to lose weight. Enough. Yeah, so, so there's an important um, kind of distinction. So Ozempic is approved for uh, diabetes, but its sister drug, which is Wagovi, is actually okay. FDA approved for weight loss yeah. in people yeah. with obesity. And so we can and we should be using it for that indication. One thing to note here is that what I think is it helps do is help people understand that obesity and weight gain is a biological process. People have been uh, for decades thinking of it as a moral failing, as a behavioral problem, as a weight uh, lifestyle problem. That is not the way to think about obesity. And these drugs can help us think a little bit about obesity as this is a biological process. A lot of this is genetically determined, and we're using a biological remedy for people who need it uh, to bring down their weight to a safer level. I'm concerned about eating disorders. I really, really am. I'm concerned, and and I think the general public is really concerned when they're seeing friends and people that are using um, an injectable instead of getting out into nature and walking and eating healthily and and enjoying and accepting the diverse body, like the bouquet of beauty that we're supposed to be. We're definitely not supposed to be the same. And that messaging, we need more of that messaging instead of saying, take a drug, you know, give yourself an injectable and and everything's going to be okay. It's it's not. It's actually scary. It's become quite a craze. Emmy, doctor, thank you both for sharing those Two perspectives on this. Really important for this. Thanks Thanks so much. Okay of beauty. I like that.
All right, also this morning, we're tracking another top story that's the headlines in several newspapers. Prosecutors say that the accused Pentagon leaker had more information than we previously knew, and that he actually also tried to destroy evidence. We're going to show you the new photos from inside his bedroom that they showed in court yesterday. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. The best part. Good morning. We bring you the bull that was a bull running for cover as hail the size of tennis balls hammered parts of Texas. The South bracing for more severe weather, hailstorms, and possible tornadoes today. Plus, we are now hearing from Tucker Carlson after he was abruptly fired from Fox News. There's new reporting in the New York Times about explosive text messages that may have led to the breaking point. Chilling new details about the suspected Discord leaker. Photos released of the arsenal inside his house and evidence he allegedly tried to destroy. This hour of CNN This Morning starts right now. But we start this morning with Tucker Carlson, the former Fox News host, speaking out for the first time since he was fired. Last night, he posted this video, which has been viewed millions of times now on Twitter, as we are learning new details about why Fox got rid of its highest rated star. The New York Times now reporting that the breaking point came on the eve of that Dominion defamation trial when Fox executives found out the highly offensive things he had said in text messages. We don't know what it was. It's redacted. I should note that Carlson did not mention any of that or Fox by name in the video. When honest people say what's true calmly and without embarrassment, they become powerful. At the same time, the liars who've been trying to silence them shrink and they become weaker. That's the iron law of the universe. True things prevail. The New York Times uh, reports Carlson's redacted text messages were even worse than ones which were revealed in those court filings. And there was one message that was particularly offensive, which added to the concern at the top of the company. That's from the Times reporting this morning. We don't know what the message was, but just yesterday, the Wall Street Journal reported that Carlson had called a senior Fox News executive the C-word. It's the same obscene word that he used to describe Sidney Powell, the Trump-connected attorney and election conspiracy theorist who was a regular guest on Fox News. Here's how one of Carlson's former producers, who we should note is now suing Fox News, described the culture of that show behind the scenes. Women were objectified. It was a game. It was a sport. Female politicians who came on the show were mocked. There were debates about who they'd rather sleep with. C-word all the time. Joining us now, CNN senior media reporter Oliver Darcy. Oliver, obviously the reason this reporting is so interesting is because people raise the question of how they could just get rid of their most popular host in prime time so abruptly. And we still really don't entirely know. Now we're hearing more about these text messages that might be redacted in these Dominion voting systems, uh, legal filings. Uh, And I think the bottom line is it's something related to this Dominion lawsuit. Something emerged from these documents that uh, resulted in Carlson ultimately losing his show. It could be I still think a variety of things. It could be a a combination of factors, but it does stem from this lawsuit. And so at the end of the day, Dominion's lawsuit against Fox News resulted in the ouster of their popular 8 p.m. host. 
And the ratings have really, really suffered in that slot with their competitor gaining in that slot. Yeah, the ratings are shows. at historic lows right now in the 8 p.m. hour. Now, it's only been a couple of nights that we know we have the ratings data. Yeah. But on Tuesday night, which is the latest night we have ratings data for, uh, Fox News delivered in the advertiser coveted 25 to 54 demo. That's the important demographic. They delivered the worst ratings since the pre-9-11 era, before the 9-11 terrorist attacks in, the, in that demo. Um, so it's a really uh, stunning uh, decline for Fox News in the ratings. And I should note, What's the most interesting is their competitor, Newsmax. They're gaining in the, in the 8 p.m. hour. They're posting numbers four to five times higher than they were before Tucker Carlson was fired. And these are the exact same, uh, this is the exact same trend that set off alarm bells before or, or after the 2020 election, which resulted ultimately in this Dominion lawsuit. Right. And that was something they were concerned about. But I'm struck by this reporting from Sarah Ellison and Jeremy Barr in The Washington Mm -hmm. Post. They say two weeks ago, Tucker had dinner with Rupert Murdoch in L.A. And now he was fired, you know, on Monday. They say that uh, the 92-year-old billionaire had grown increasingly weary of some of his far-right commentary on his show, as well as his his behind-the-scenes attitude, and was disturbed by his stance on Ukraine. You know, it's it's hard to make sense of all of this because the Murdochs stood by Carlson as he uh, promoted all sorts of deranged conspiracy theories and uh, white nationalist rhetoric on the air for years. And they were called out by groups like the Anti-Defamation League. They were fact-checked and they stood by Carlson. They, 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 they said he was the 8 p.m. host and they took they stood by him. And so now that, you know, there's some reporting that maybe Rupert Murdoch was uh, concerned about Ukraine rhetoric from Carlson, I'm, I'm sure Perhaps he was, but it still, to me, doesn't quite add up. Why do you oust your 8 p.m. host, who you've stood by through all these controversies because of, you know, recent uh, Ukraine rhetoric? I, I just, it just doesn't add up. And also the idea that they don't know he was sort of like crude behind the scenes is a bit silly. I think anyone who has spoken to Tucker Carlson privately would know the language he uses. And so I, I, I just think at the end of the day, this doesn't entirely add up. But perhaps it has to do something with his entire demeanor, that he thought he was bigger than the network. And that's really a cardinal sin in Rupert Murdoch's empire. I think a lot of people thought that, including Republican lawmakers. Uh, Oliver Darcy, if you see these text messages, let us know. Thanks, Oliver. Just hours from now, the Air National Guard has been accused of leaking classified military documents will appear in court in Massachusetts. Prosecutors there are asking the judge to keep 21-year-old Jack DeSera behind bars as he awaits his trial. The court, the court filing released overnight shows us that DeSera took far more material from the U.S. government than previously reported, made violent threats, and showed a willingness to destroy evidence. Jason Carroll joins us live outside the courthouse. This is his second appearance, and boy, did we learn a lot from the prosecutors. Yep. Oh, yeah, a lot of new information and new allegations, including that Teixeira viewed hundreds of classified documents, something that was not reported before. Prosecutors are now worried that if he were to get out, that he might still have access to some of those classified documents, which is why they say he needs to remain behind bars. Court documents filed by the U.S. Attorney's Office argue the alleged leaker of classified documents, Jack Teixeira, should not be released on bail while he awaits trial, claiming he poses a serious flight risk, writing he could take refuge with a foreign adversary to avoid the reach of U.S. law. 
Prosecutors claim that the information Teixeira allegedly accessed far exceeds what has been disclosed on the Internet, and therefore he poses an ongoing risk both to the national security of the United States and to the community. Included in the filing are chilling pictures from the search warrant executed on Teixeira's bedroom, showing a gun locker next to his bed containing multiple weapons, including an AK-style high-capacity weapon, handguns, shotguns, rifles, and a gas mask. Prosecutors say law enforcement also found a smashed tablet, laptop, and a gaming console in a dumpster at the house. The alleged leaker has also obstructed justice, according to prosecutors, by telling those he was communicating with online to delete all messages and, if anyone comes looking, don't tell them expletive. Also alleging he, quote, deleted the social media server where he posted government information and procured a new phone number and email address. Prosecutors say his history surrounding guns raises questions as to why he was a candidate for the Air National Guard. The court document states in 2018, Teixeira was suspended while still in high school after a classmate allegedly overheard him make remarks about guns and make racial threats. That same year, prosecutors say he applied for a firearms ID card but was denied due to the concerns of the local police department over the defendant's remarks at his high school. Court documents mention his social media posts reviewed by the FBI. One post from last November reads, I hope ISIS goes through with their attack plan and creates a massacre at the World Cup. Further writing, if I had my way, I'd kill a ton of people. Seriously, I would be forcibly culling the weak-minded. Prosecutors say the defense is indicating they may ask the judge to release Teixeira to his father's home. Warning, the defendant has proven to be nothing short of deceptive and coercive, exposing others to peril in pursuit of his own freedom. And Poppy, as, as we were looking through the court filing from late last night, this is something else that we found, another disturbing allegation. Apparently back in February, when Teixeira was speaking with a Discord user, he talked about converting a minivan into what he called an assassination van where he talked about wanting to carry out a mass shooting in an urban area or in a suburb. These are just some of the things that will be taken under consideration when this detention hearing yeah. gets underway at 1 o'clock. Poppy. Incredibly disturbing. Jason Carroll, thank you very much. Meanwhile, in Washington, House Republicans are taking a victory lap as they got Speaker and passed Speaker Kevin McCarthy's debt limit increase by the narrowest possible margin. The yeas are 217, the nays are 215, the bill is passed. All House Democrats and four Republican holdouts voted against the bill, which is almost certainly going to be rejected by the Democrat-led Senate. Schumer has said as much. McCarthy conveyed that the ball he believes is now in President Biden and the Democrats' court. We just passed the bill. It's not our job to... Uh, Modify it. We're the only ones to lift the debt limit to make sure this economy is not in jeopardy. Included in this bill that was passed yesterday, blocking student loan forgiveness, rescinding new funding for the IRS, work requirements for safety net programs like Medicare or Medicaid, I should note, repealing green energy tax credits and rescinding unspent COVID-19 money. The government could default on its debt if a bipartisan deal is not reached as soon as early June. The president wants the debt ceiling discussion to be separate 
from spending talks. He said this about a potential meeting with McCarthy. Happy to meet with McCarthy, but not on whether or not the debt limit gets extended. That's not negotiable. Joining us now is House Majority Whip Tom Emmer of Minnesota. Good morning, Congressman. Thank you for being here. Republicans cheering last night as this passed by a very slim margin. But I think the question that everyone at home has is what happens now? Well, uh, thanks for having me. First off, uh, remember, Republicans have a very slim majority in the House. Everybody matters. Uh, And it passed the House yesterday with uh, overwhelming support. We had four members who wanted more, uh, had other things that they were interested in, but they're not against the the policy. Look, Republicans uh, have uh, provided a solution to the debt ceiling. It's over in the Senate. And if uh, the president is uh, being sincere, uh, which he said he was going to veto things uh, so far in the first three months that he reversed himself on, maybe he'll do that on this one. But uh, bottom line is, if he's sincere, then Chuck Schumer and the Democrats leading the Senate have a solution to the debt ceiling problem with some historic spending reforms, almost $4.8 trillion in savings over the next 10 years. And I suggest they take it up and pass it. Well, it doesn't seem like they will. Schumer has said it's dead on arrival. So is the question, is the nation closer to a default this morning? Well, it shouldn't be. Uh, Actually, the solution has been provided. Kevin McCarthy and House Republicans have once again led Uh, The president, uh, Chuck Schumer, all they've been doing is spouting rhetoric for three months. They want to play with American families' uh, financial security and with the uh, future of the financial future of this country. Uh, That's unacceptable. So I commend Kevin McCarthy, our speaker. I commend all our members because this bill was built from the bottom up. This was a collective process. Uh, We would have loved to have had the White House, the Senate, uh, Democrats participating but they've chosen to play with our financial future for political reasons rather than get to the table and work it out. So guess what? Solution is over in the Senate. If you don't want to negotiate uh, or you don't like it, then you should come to the table. If uh, you're not going to come to the table, pass it. Well, Congressman, I'm sure you've also would have loved to have those four Republican holdouts vote for this, but you saw uh, they did not. We saw them vote against it yesterday with the Democrats. You have a very difficult job, which is navigating the Republicans. You're the whip for Republicans in the House. You have to make sure all the votes are there. Was there ever a moment when you thought this may not get passed? No, no. As I said for the last couple of weeks, uh, we're going to pass this bill. uh, No question. And again, you've got all kinds of perspectives, all kinds of personalities. I think it's uh, it's a testament to uh, Speaker McCarthy's leadership and our membership uh, that they recognize what the challenges are for this country and for American families. And without any uh, participation from the White House or the Senate, they had to take action. And yesterday they did. Uh, historic, historic bill that, quite frankly, uh, they should take a serious look at in the Senate. And I would suggest if you don't uh, want to talk about it any further, then pass the bill and protect uh, Americans' futures. Well, regardless, something does have to happen here. And if McCarthy does negotiate a deal with Senator Schumer, with President Biden, are you confident that you can whip the votes to get that passed? Well, you got to see, first off, the solution is there. It's already over in the Senate. Uh, They can take that up and pass it if they don't want to talk about it further. If they have problems with it, I expect somebody will call uh, uh, Speaker McCarthy and they'll sit down with him and they'll have a discussion. And if there are any additions, any subtractions, uh, if they want to go forward with something else at some point, uh, we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. 
But can McCarthy get the same support if the cuts that you just passed aren't in whatever is the agreement? Well, what if there are more? And and you keep calling them cuts. But there's not going to be more. We we did this, $4.8 trillion in savings, and we not only protected uh, things like Social Security and Medicare, we actually protected them and improved on them. By bringing people back into the workforce, you're actually going to provide these programs that people rely on with the resources to continue going forward. Uh, The only party that's showing leadership on this right now, quite frankly, is the Republican Party. And hopefully, hopefully, if there's a if there are differences, different points of view, we start to get that from our colleagues in the Senate and then White House. I understand that's your point about the work requirements when it comes to Medicaid that was passed. That was part of the changes that actually Republicans made after McCarthy said he wasn't going to change it. But the idea that there would be more cuts. I mean, the White House has said that's not going to happen. Senator Schumer has said that's not going to happen. You do have to come to some kind of a agreement with them, right? Actually, uh, your statement about this was part of what was negotiated after is not correct. There Uh, were changes made. The work requirements. The Rules Committee was still in session until five o'clock yesterday morning. There were two technical changes that were made. Essentially, what you've got that came to the floor yesterday was the original bill. Uh, The work requirements, quite frankly, are Clinton-era work requirements that Joe Biden himself voted for. And you know what? This is not a Republican or Democrat thing. All this is is encouraging able-bodied, working-aged adults without dependents to get back into the workforce. And if you travel this country, you know we have a crisis when it comes to finding workers uh, on Main Street all across this country. It will protect people who need the benefits while at the same time providing an incentive for people to get back in the workforce. I understand that's your position. I do want to ask you before you go about something you tweeted. You said, don't let Democrats fool you. There is no such thing as a clean debt limit increase. But repeatedly, when I covered President Trump, when he was in office, we saw Republicans vote to raise it without any conditions. Uh, there, quite frankly, there is no such thing as a uh, clean debt uh, increase, especially with this administration and this Senate. Uh, to give Chuck Schumer and Joe Biden a blank check to do whatever they want, more unrestricted, uh, unnecessary spending that is driving double-digit inflation we hadn't seen in 40 years, that is creating, I mean, spiking costs at the grocery store, at the gas pump. Uh, That would be the biggest mistake. And people have to remember, the most important fiscal reforms that we have had in the last 30 years have come with these debt ceiling uh, discussions. So again, yesterday, Republicans and Kevin McCarthy led in the House. The solution is there. Uh, If you don't have ideas, pass it. Protect the American people in this country's financial future. Uh, If you don't like something in it, please call our speaker. Sit down with them and start talking about it. So when you say there's no such thing as a clean debt ceiling increase, you're saying it's not a practical outcome here, but not that it doesn't exist because Republicans did repeatedly do that under Trump. You were there. Absolutely. The uh, okay. when it comes to the debt increase, when it comes to the debt increase, we have always had spending reforms with a de- debt increase. So the idea that you're saying that there was some difference under the last administration, Nancy Pelosi, you might remember in 2019, said there will be no debt ceiling increase without uh, strings attached. So let's not try to rewrite history. This is always the way it's done. And in this case, we got a White House and a Senate. They haven't put forth any ideas. They haven't put forth any solutions. So guess what? Kevin McCarthy and House Republicans did that yesterday. If you don't have any solutions, let's all protect America's future and keep the Americans we represent in mind past the bill. If you don't like something in it, call our speaker. Come on over. Have a discussion with them. 
and let's see what we can do. Yeah, I'm not saying it doesn't it hasn't happened before. I'm saying that Republicans have passed it before in this situation. Of course, a lot of questions about where this goes from here. And if President Biden does call Speaker McCarthy or vice versa, we'll see what happens. Tom Emmer, thank you so much. You're the whip. I appreciate you being here this morning. Thanks for having me. Eugene Carroll, the former magazine columnist suing former President Trump for battery and defamation, will return to the stand today. What you should expect inside that courtroom, that's next. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. In just a short time from now, the woman accusing former President Donald Trump of rape is expected to take the stand again here in New York. Columnist E. Jean Carroll is set to face more questions from her own lawyer. And then the former president's lawyer will cross-examine her. Yesterday, Carroll testified that in the mid-1990s, Trump raped her in a Bergdorf Goodman's dressing room. He has previously denied that accusation. He's called it a hoax. But on the stand, Carroll said, quote, I'm here because Donald Trump raped me. And when I wrote about it, he said he, it didn't happen. He lied. He shattered my reputation. And I'm here to try to get my life back. Our senior legal affairs correspondent, Paula Reed, is back with us in terms of what we can expect today, right? Because they have to think hard about how they're going to cross-examine her. Uh, especially in a case like this. Absolutely. Any defense attorney will tell you that cross-examining someone who alleges they have been sexually assaulted is a delicate task. And I would argue that this is probably the most important day of this entire trial, unless the former president decides to testify, of course, because yesterday was very powerful. We heard E. Jean Carroll speaking at times through tears, recounting her story, but we had heard many of those details before. Now, though, her story is going to have to stand up to cross-examination. And we know how they're going to try to undermine her story. First, they argue that she made it up and that she did so for political purposes. There's also this larger question of, well, why now? So it's interesting, yesterday we saw her attorneys try to get ahead of some of these questions, lay the foundation. For example, why now? Why did it take you so long? Well, she says that she was frightened, she was fearful of retaliation, and she was ashamed. She also insisted she's not doing this to settle political scores. She says that when she came out with these accusations, he attacked her reputation. And as a journalist, that's all she has. But it is going to be fascinating to see how they do this. And of course, we expect that this cross-examination will be done by the former president's lawyer, Joe Takapina. Now, I think even he would admit he is big, he is loud, he is brash. He's sort of a central casting for a very aggressive New York defense attorney. This is going to be a real challenge for him. It'll be interesting to see how he approaches this. Yeah. Yeah. This goes Paula Reed. Thank you. Also, the feds say they are trying to speed up development for gene therapy. Researchers say the technique can help or even treat, help treat or even prevent disease. It could be a game changer for children and adults who suffer from rare diseases. CNN's Elizabeth Cohen spoke to a little girl who's been waiting a long time for this therapy. What are you going to be this year for Halloween? You don't I'm know? Gonna cheerleader. You're going to be a cheerleader? Five-year-old Saoirse Sulak loves costumes, but she doesn't go trick-or-treating like other children do. Any germ, even a common cold, could kill her because she was born with severe combined immunodeficiency, or bubble boy disease. Made famous by the 1976 John Travolta movie, The Boy in the Plastic Bubble. Searsha was born in Hawaii, where her father was stationed as an Army helicopter pilot. When she was six days old, she was airlifted to UCLA Mattel Children's Hospital, where she spent nearly two months. For the first year of her life, she never left her bedroom. Her first Christmas gifts wiped clean and brought to her room. Later, medications helped. She's getting six to seven shots a month, or needles in her legs. 
and she could go outside, but still not near anyone except her immediate family. Then Dr. Donald Cohn, who runs this lab at UCLA, had some good news for the family. He said it looked like in the not-too-distant future, Searsha would be able to get a treatment called gene therapy. He's worked on it for nearly 40 years. We can really fix the gene or replace the gene that's missing. It's really exciting. A 2021 study showed the therapy had stunning, near-perfect results. All the children we treated in the past are, are doing well. We, we barely hear from them anymore. But then the company that owned the gene therapy decided not to pursue FDA approval. Instead, they invested money in treatments for more common diseases. That left Searsha and more than two dozen other families waiting to get the treatment. The longer that we waited, the higher chance of infection or her medication not working or something happening outside of our control to make her severely sick. Okay, go ahead. Promising gene therapies for rare diseases have sometimes had trouble getting to market because the potential profits might be small. It's been very frustrating. Thursday, the FDA is holding a meeting on gene therapy, one of a series of public meetings intended to help the development of these innovative treatments. Last week, the agency's leader testified to a Senate committee. We agree that this is an area we've got to move along more quickly. As for Searsha... Santa got it for me. Santa got it for you. Next month, she'll bring her unicorn suitcase to the hospital to get the gene therapy. She had a preparatory visit earlier this month. Her family looking forward to the day that she's like other five-year-olds. She's excited to go to school, and she wants to go to a Dodger game, and she's inviting everybody to Disney World for her. After years of waiting, Searsha and her family thrilled for the day she can finally get out into the world. Now, Saoirse's mom tells me that Saoirse is aware that she's got a long hospital stay coming up filled with pokes and shots, but that Saoirse says she's ready because she knows that that's what's going to get her to Disney World, to the Dodgers game and to kindergarten. Yeah, anything to get to Disney World. Elizabeth Cohen, thank you so much. Also this morning, Montana House Republicans have banned transgender lawmaker Zoe Zephyr from the House chamber for the remainder of their entire legislative session. The state representative is going to join us here live next with her perspective. If you vote yes on this bill and yes on these amendments, I hope the next time there's an invocation, when you bow your heads in prayer, you see the blood on your hands. That's Montana State Representative Zoe Zephyr, the first openly transgender woman elected to the state legislature there, admonishing Republican colleagues for passing bills restricting transgender rights. Republicans have since banned her from the Montana House chamber for the rest of the legislative session. Days after she gave that speech, protest actually broke out in the House chamber when Zephyr raised her microphone in solidarity. Police and riot gear responded, ultimately arresting seven protesters. And last night, this all culminated as Republicans kicked Zephyr out of the House chamber for refusing to apologize. Joining us now is that Montana State Representative Zoe Zephyr. Good morning and thank you for being here. I think a big question that people have is what's next for you now that this has happened? So I was elected to represent 11,000 Montanans in the People's House and I left yesterday with my head held high knowing I had made a moral and right choice and I will walk into the building this morning with my head held high. I will find a place to talk to my colleagues, to sit down and to vote on the bills. So you can't speak on the floor. You can vote remotely. Is that is that right? Do I have that correct? 
That's correct, which is important to note in that we have a handful of bills, big bills coming forward in the last week of our legislative session, housing policy, the budget. And every time we debate any bill on the House floor, there's going to be 11,000 Montanans whose voices are missing from that conversation. And what have you heard from the 11,000 people that you represent? Have you heard feedback from them since this happened? Or what are their concerns about about the idea that their uh, elected voice won't be there as that debate is happening? I think you hit it exactly at that. I, there's frustration in my community that the their voices aren't being allowed to be heard. But there's also gratitude for standing up. I know my community inside and out. I walked through it every day for years prior to my election. And they elected me to speak on their behalf and to fight the hard fights, which is what I did. And they're proud of me for doing so. Here's how your Republican colleagues are, are defending their decision, the moves that they made last night. They say this is because of, uh, of your speech that you gave on the House floor. This body witnessed one of its members participating in conduct that disrupted and disturbed the orderly proceedings of this body. It's an irrefutable fact that the representative in question did indeed actively support and arguably incite the disruptive antics of demonstrators who had gathered in the House gallery. The representative of House District 100 failed to do her duty. Republicans want you to apologize, will you? No, what we have seen in the session is an unequal application of decorum. When the speaker agrees with the Republican supermajority, uh, they get away with a lot. We've heard screaming in closings. We've heard people insinuate that my very existence is somehow sexualizing children. And when it comes to a bill that I know the real impacts of, I've seen and heard from the families who have been facing suicides, suicide attempts, assaults on them. Uh, to apologize for that would be to be complicit that harm. I can't do that. We're watching what's happening here with your punishment. It comes after we watched very closely what also happened in Tennessee, where Democrats there were unseated from uh, from their seats after they led a protest of gun violence on the chamber floor. Justin Pearson, one of those legislators in Tennessee, actually tweeted in support of you saying, quote, we will not let our democracy die without fighting for every voice. We are in this fight from Memphis to Montana, you know, now that you've been thrust into the national spotlight, just like they have, do you see the through line between what happened in Tennessee and what's happening in your home state? I do. And I think the through line is that Republican supermajorities in these states are passing legislation that is broadly out of step with our communities. Um, trans people are loved and accepted uh, through my community and through many communities in Montana. Um, Americans want gun reform. And what we're seeing is when marginalized communities stand up and talk about the real harm that these policies bring, it's not enough for these far-right legislatures to pass those bills. They want us to be silent. And we're not being silent, and the people who elected us all right, Representative Zoe Zephyr, thank you so much for your time this morning. Thank you for having me. Also, this release just moments ago, the gross domestic product, the GDP report for the first quarter of 2023. Our business team is crunching the numbers. Stand by. We'll bring those to you. And also, it is a big day for sports fans everywhere. NFL Draft Day. You are now looking live at Kansas City. It's all going to go down there in just hours from now. What teams can learn from previous picks? Harry Anton has this morning's number.
All right, some new numbers that were released just moments ago. The gross domestic product report for the first quarter of this year. CNN's chief business correspondent, Christine Romans, is here. She's been tracking these numbers. What does it show us? Well, this is the rearview mirror, but it shows us in the first three months of the year, the economy slowed a bit, little bit, Caitlin. 1.1% is the growth here in the U.S. economy in January, February, and March. And you can see how that compares, how that is a slowdown from the last quarter of last year, which was 2.6%, and certainly from the middle of last year, which was a strong uh, 3.2%. Uh, so this is a slowdown. What are, what's happening here? You've got high inflation still. It's coming off the boil of last summer, but inflation is still uh, too high here. And you've got interest rates that have been going up for a year now. So I think this is what it looks like when you see those interest rates so high for over a year. And the government says there was an increase in consumer spending. So the consumer is still strong in the first part of the year, but a decrease in inventory builds and inventory investments. That's businesses cautious and pulling back. Yeah. Okay. So with that backdrop, we've also been talking all week about layoffs and the right. amount of companies that are doing layoffs. We were talking about 3M when that broke when you were on set the other day. We have new jobless numbers. What's that picture look like? This picture is at odds with all the headlines of layoffs in so many different industries. Huh. You have 230,000 first-time unemployment benefits. That is still pretty historically low. It's down 16,000 from the week prior. I had expected these to start to rise because a lot of people who got tech layoffs were still uh, getting severance before they were filing for unemployment benefits. So that was something I thought you'd start to be seeing in here. So that could happen in the weeks ahead, but this is still historic low and it shows a job market that is still pretty strong despite everything you're seeing, all those headlines you're seeing about uh, layoffs in this economy, Caitlin. Huh. We'll continue to watch that, see if yep. there's any revisions. Christine yep. Romans, thank you. Also, speaking of numbers, it is NFL draft night. Millions of people are expected to tune in to watch their teams pick their favorite football players. 31 names of the first night of the draft, which is being hosted, we should note, in Kansas City. More than 250 players can see if their dreams come true. Harry Enton, what's this morning's number? Okay, so this morning's number is 12.8 million. That was the NFL first round viewership and average over the last three years. Wow. This is an event, Caitlin. People come out, they wear their team's colors, they get so excited. We watched it on the air. I remember during COVID watching uh, Bill Belichick's dog yes. make a draft pick. Remember that? That was fun. When he was in his sleeveless hoodie. That's that exactly. Epic. He looked exactly like his owner. And I just want to point out that 12.8, how impressive that is. It's more than Game 1 of the World Series has averaged. It's more than the top scripted show has averaged over the last years. And it's more than the NBA Finals Game 1 has averaged over the first years. So football, Caitlin, in this country, it is king. And yep. here's the funny thing about this. If you look at NFL recent draft history, it was only first televised in 1980. They didn't think it would actually bring in any viewership. Why? How, why? Because they didn't realize that. it'd be boring? How, I think people thought it'd be boring. It'd be like a process, right? So now, of course, it makes millions of dollars, not just for the NFL, but for the host season as, uh, of the host city as well, which is why these cities fight so much to get the draft in their backyard. Yeah, and it's in Kansas City this year. Okay, obviously, I have a huge vested interest in this. I always love to watch this as well. Uh, who do we think is going to be the first-round pick? Yeah, so, you know, if we look, you know, does this first draft pick become an all-star, an all-pro. And I've looked since 1990, and it turns out that 22 of them in the NFL had, that's basically on par with the NBA, where 23 have. In the MLB, it's a little bit more of a crapshoot, but the chances are the person that you're going to see drafted first tonight is going to go on to be someone who's really, really good. But here's the one little thing I will point out. I love this. Sometimes the NFL draft surprises, right? Future Hall of Famer Tom Brady was picked 199th in the 2000 draft. 
I don't think he exactly looked like the type of guy that you thought was going to go on to be this great player. I think he probably hates this picture, that it's everywhere. You know what? Very famous people deserve a little bit of teasing from time to time to ground <laughs> them a little bit. That's why I like uh, teasing myself and having people tease me, because I like to say grounded. Yeah, you want to just stay humble. I know, but this is so funny. Whenever they compared this to that Mac Jones photo, of course, <laughs> Alabama's quarterback. Um, so great. All right, well, we'll, see to, we'll watch to see who's going to be the Tom Brady of tonight. Who else? Harry Anton, thank you. Also in Washington, President Biden, First Lady Jill Biden, capped off the South Korean president's official state visit with a glamorous state dinner at the White House last night. These are always very dramatic affairs. But the highlight of the night was a karaoke rendition of American Pie by President Yoon. A long, long time ago. A moment that had everyone laughing. Of course, the elaborate dinner is a result of weeks of planning that goes on by the White House. Chefs, their social staff, protocol experts. Like previous state dinners, the guest list was star-studded. You saw them coming in. The movie star and humanitarian Angelina Jolie and her son Maddox Jolie-Pitt were there. Plus the home design reality stars Chip and Joanna Gaines. Also, Olympic gold medalist, snowboarder Chloe Kim. She has Korean parents. She was there as well. In addition to Senator Mitt Romney, popping quite a moment there at the White House. He is one of the most iconic characters on television. Dwight Schrute from The Office, now the actor behind the overachieving paper salesman, is taking the lead on a spiritual revolution. Our sit-down interview with Rain Wilson is next. He is an organ owner. He is. Yeah. Give me some ice in a styrofoam bucket. Here we go. Oh my God! We search for the organs. Where's the heart? Precious heart. I'm not feeling well. I need to sit down. Are you okay? Oh my God! Oh my God! The actor, producer, and writer Rain Wilson won people's hearts as the surly and unapologetic Dwight Schrute in NBC's The Office. And now Rain wants to tell you about the transformative power of religion and spirituality in his new book that is available now, Soul Boom, Why We Need a Spiritual Revolution. Rain joins us now. Thank you so much for being here. Why did you write it? What, what drove you to embark on this project that was three years in the making? Well, a lot of people ask, like, why the hell is the guy who played Dwight Schrute writing a book about spirituality? But I will say that these topics in it uh, are something that have obsessed me for decades. I love reading about religion, about spirituality. I have a meditation practice. I love reading mystical writings and thinking about life's biggest possible questions. Why we're here? What's the meaning of life? Is there a God? Do we have a soul? All of that gooey, messy, delightful stuff. And finally, you know, COVID gave me an opportunity to sit down at a, at a typewriter and, uh, and come up with this thing. One uh, thing that struck me particularly in the book is when you write about after your father passed away. And you said, I knew in that moment there was something deeper afoot, that a life, mine, yours, my father's, could not simply come to an end because brain-centered activity ceased. I saw the body laid out and had this deep realization that this is not my father. This is the vessel that carried my father. Whatever my father is, his, his light, his spirit, his soul, his consciousness, whatever you want to call it. And this got me, this motivated me to dig even deeper into the mystery of being alive, kind of questions that we don't 
talk about much in contemporary society or think about too deeply or probe too too deeply. Something you said about young kids really stood out to me. I have mm -hmm. young siblings. Um, and you said the bottom line is young people are suffering greatly. They seem to be lacking in the tools, skills, and ability to find solutions to these difficult issues that we all deal with, to befriend, to bond, to connect, to self-soothe, to find joy, to create community. There are a lot of people who are concerned about younger generations and what they are doing and what that does look like when it comes to this sense of spirituality. We have... Uh a mental health crisis among young people that is absolutely unprecedented in the history of the human species. There's climate change as a pandemic. Racism and sexism are pandemics. Militarism, nationalism are pandemics as well. And all of these pandemics can't be addressed, you guys, by a new piece of legislation or a new election or some new congressman getting elected here or there. These are fundamental human issues that need to be addressed at the heart level and at the soul level. And I'm not talking about some kind of airy-fairy, namby-pamby kind of like incense and chakras kind of spirituality. I'm talking about a digging deep into who we are as human beings and addressing some of these issues at the soul level. Um, I have been sort of re-experiencing my faith through my children. When Sienna was three, she asked me who God is. Now I'm getting the questions from both kids about why does God let bad things happen? Right. And you write about joy in this book, and you say joy, however, inherently acknowledges sorrow. Mm. That's one of the profound human questions since the dawn of time. You know, why? And it really comes down to why is there suffering? And, uh... In this mental health crisis, when you talk to mental health professionals, they'll address the uh, mental health epidemic among young people as a lack of resilience. That's often pointed to as a deficiency. But I do think that this lack of resilience points to an even bigger question, which is, has to do with the nature of suffering itself. Why do we suffer? And why at the same time, when we suffer, are we grateful for the suffering that we've undergone? So... Joy is an antidote to that because we don't want to gloss over suffering and just try and eliminate suffering and just be happy all the time. That can be oppressive and insufferable sometimes when people, you see influencers on Instagram like, just be happy and look positive. And but bringing joy, using joy as a tool to bring joy to others like we did on The Office, that acknowledges the fact that there are ups and downs, and we can have suffering, we can also have joy. And that's part of the miracle of being alive. Yeah. Such a lovely way to put it. And Thanks. the book is Soul Boom, Why We Need a Spiritual Revolution. Do you think we'll get one? A spiritual revolution? Are we in one? I hope so. We, people are certainly way more open to these kind of questions and ideas than they were even like five or ten years ago. Because as things continue to unravel, yeah. people realize that, oh, maybe spirituality uh, has some answers. Before you go, okay, we want to mention this. A video that you posted of a guy sitting next to you. This happened on a plane uh, watching The Office. He had no clue <laughs> I love this. that you yeah. were there. Has anything like this happened before? You know, honestly, it was pretty great. Five and a half hours next to a guy watching The Office nonstop. And then finally, as we're landing, I nudge him. I'm like, hey, I heard that's a pretty good show, Stop. huh? And, I'm, and I take off my COVID mask very delicately. And, and then all of a sudden, <laughs> his head explodes. What did he say? Oh, my God. <laughs> To be fair, I'd probably do the same thing. <laughs> Love The Office. It's so great. Thank uh, you. Rain Wilson, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Congrats. Yeah.
Be sure to grab this book, Soul Boom, Why We All Need a Spiritual Revolution, available now. My dad is so jealous of the interview. Yeah. Do we you like the we picture? We love watching The Office. We watch it all the time. <laughs> we, I mean, reruns are just constantly on, and we're <laughs> quoting it in our family group chat all the time. Um, I just was so impressed with him. Yeah. yeah. Good for him for it's doing cool, this. It's cool because you see someone, you think they're their character, and then you see them write a book yeah. on something. Totally different. So, yes, our thanks to Rain for joining us. Also, thank you for joining us this morning. CNN News Central starts right after this break. That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at cnn.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.